Then it occurred to Kristen Laverne's daughter in a new way, that the interpreters of God's words were right. Life on this earth was irredeemably tainted by strife. In this world, wherever people mingled, producing new descendants, allowing themselves to be drawn together by physical love and loving their own flesh, sorrows of the heart and broken expectations were bound to occur as surely as the frost appears in the autumn. Both life and death would separate friends in the end, as surely as the winter separates the tree from its leaves. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, if you're new to us, this is the world's smallest book club about big books. Um, our gimmick is like, you know, about four times a year. Bill and I read a book over 500 pages, you know, like a marathon that we sprint through. And then we immediately get together and talk about how we couldn't breathe for the last two weeks. We've been working so hard <laughs> to finish this book. That's <laughs> um, kind of how I always feel when we finish any any project, especially in the past. We've done, you know, Black Lamb and Great Falcon or A Secular Age. I think those were two of the bigger kind of, you know, pushes in our history. But um, I think I would go ahead and somewhat throw uh, this uh, this read that we just did, Kristen Lavern's Daughter by Sigrid Unset. Um, it's, a, it's actually three books, you know, but it came out in one big volume from Penguin, and uh, we read it as one big volume. And it's more readable than some of the titles I just mentioned in some sense. It's, you know, got a lot of melodrama and fun, but I, I, I at least personally, I really do feel like I kind of finished a marathon, and I'm at the, like, finish line, and there's an interviewer who's like, hey, can you describe in detail, you know, like, how it felt to do this? And part of me is like tiring <laughs> and not <laughs> and not in a bad way like i had definitely like it's a you know extend the metaphor even further i had like runner's high for this book but i definitely felt like uh you know i feel a little breathless coming into this podcast um how about you bill how you feeling after this big book <laughs> yeah it was uh it's definitely you know so it's a big epic in the sense that it goes through you know an entire person's life and everything that happens and it's definitely the sort of book where you finish it and then you you think back on what happens at the beginning because you're getting ready to do a podcast and you're like yeah that's the same book uh you know this is <laughs> this the salt right <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i know well let's uh, yeah <laughs> no i was gonna say so i, I actually so um I'll, for you know for once i'll i'm trying to give a little you know more details about what the book is bill just said it's a big you know uh epic saga of Kristen Lavrensada's life. She's a person living in Norway in the 14th century. Not a real person. She's a character. You know, she's made up. Um, <laughs> but uh, the book was written by Sigrid Unset, like I said, who um, won the Nobel Prize. This book was translated in like 01 or something, retranslated by, how do you say her name, Bill? Tina You know, Nunali? I meant to look it up and I didn't. It's, it's something like Tina Nunali yeah. or Tina Nunali. Yeah. So she kind of retranslated it and it kind of like regained, you know, um, steam among a certain part of the, the reading world. Um, but yeah, it's honestly, I mean, I, it's, it sounds as fun as it could be. It's, it's 14th century Norway. I'm not sure how else I could sell it besides saying, you know, <laughs> besides saying that. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. But I, so <laughs> I think I texted you at one point. I'm already off in the weeds kind of. I, I'm not sure. Sh- I'm not sure I could just to like start. I'm not sure I could reread this book for a long time. I feel that way about a lot of the big books because they're so big. But don't you feel like, like 
just at a basic level, like this, this book wants to show you someone's life. And I feel like it'd be hard to relive that life. Do you know what I mean? Like I've all the big books that I've loved. I already have a hard time imagining me rereading this book, even though I think that I probably need to, to understand it more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's the sort of book that would really reward a second reading. I mean, most good books do, but I think this one in particular, you'd be able to pick up on a lot of the recurring themes and, and some of the foreshadowing of what happens. Yeah. But it's going to be a while if I ever read it again, because, yeah, it feels like I, you know, I lived an entire life in 14th century Norway, and I need to maybe oh, think it about really, it. You know, it, really, you got, it really does. <laughs> you got to imagine Captain Picard took a few days off after the inner light. You know oh, what I'm saying? Yeah. Boom, that's a Next Generation reference that's here. Great. I'm not going to explicate it further than that. If you don't know the famous episode, <laughs> The Inner Light, get out of our podcast. We don't want you here. I mean, I feel like 14th century Norway is already a good, you know, like, uh, gatekeeping <laughs> mechanism. Um, <laughs> that's really good, though. I mean, I'm I'm just happy you made a Next Generation reference, and you know, I feel like Deep Space Nine is is where the the Bill references usually aim toward. Well, you know, it's the better show. So it, it, yeah. it, I think um, actually, cons- con- like consistently, quality wise, it really is. Um, which I've I've been loath to admit to you for like our whole friendship, but um, well, my favorite thing about uh, thinking DS Nine is the best Star Trek show, in addition to the sort of quiet pleasure i always enjoy in being right about things. yeah but it's that you say it to someone and they say no no it's not and then, and then they, they realize the and they're like yeah no it, it absolutely Shoot. is i'm sorry <laughs> i will say part of their benefit is that you know it's spun off from next generation essentially and next generation had taken like two to three years to figure out how to do a star trek show you know they kind of t- they kind of took the bullet on the front end don't you think Oh yeah, you couldn't do DS9 without Next Generation first. That's absolutely true. All right, um, let's pivot. <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually rewatching Next Generation right now, and boy, those first few seasons so are rough. Bad. Which I have known you know my whole life, but boy, howdy, yeah, are they rough? They're really bad. Um, <laughs> um, okay, anyway, let's go back to our other esoteric topic. <laughs> um, no, I, I so I think I love this book, Bill. I I don't think um you know I think I'm still recovering from sort of uh, the ending, which you know. I think it's tragic and interesting. And I, I, I actually thought of like some comparisons to Madame Bovary, um, a character who, spoiler, like Kristen Levin sort of dies in the end and dies kind of horrifically. And there's a lot of discussion around Madame Bovary at one point from people I don't know anymore or remember their names about like, you know, almost the idea of like, is Madame Bovary sort of like callously disposed of or, you know, or kind of is there a real tragedy to it? Um, I, I, I think there's real tragedy here, but I do think um, for as much as like this book trucks and sort of some sentimentalism and melodrama, like it, it undercuts every sort of easy thesis you can make about life, right? Like God is good and he loves you. That book believes that. And it also undercuts it with like, and you're going to watch your children die and your husband die and the black plague is going to kill everyone you know. You know what I mean? Like, the, like so I feel like the book really leaves you on a, on a really interesting kind of brutal note at the end, which we'll get to. But um but yeah, man, I don't know. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you, do you do you have a book club reaction to this? Because I feel like I think I might love it, but I almost need like three more months to to figure that out. Yeah, I, I don't know if I love it quite as much as you do. I, I like the book. You know, I'm not really gonna uh, articulate any specific criticisms of the book. I think it's uh I think it's a very good book. I think she does some incredible things with it. It's definitely the sort of book that I need some more time to digest. Um even just, you know, I finished it today. I had read most of it before today, but I finished it today. And then 
as I was putting together my notes for the podcast, I was liking the book more and more and more. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like I, I didn't dislike the book at any point in this process, but as I was kind of thinking back through everything, I was like, oh yeah, wow, this is a, it's actually a masterwork is what this is. So I don't know if I had maybe quite as strong an emotional uh, connection to it as you did. And I think there might be some reasons for that. You know, I don't have kids for one thing. Right. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's a really good book. Um, I, I don't know as I have an easy book club response to it though other than i i want to keep thinking about it and keep talking about it which is what we're going to be doing on this podcast as it turns we out. are you so know the, so one thing i wanted to throw out is um it's always funny with a book like this because on one hand it sounds very like maybe demanding you know oh i got some people I, I tell like oh i'm reading a book about you know 14th century norway and they're like cool i stopped listening when you said book you know um yeah. <laughs> and so but it's funny because historical fiction though is actually a very popular genre, right? It's like one of the most popular genres. I mean, it's, you know, it's got a devoted readership. I'm a librarian. It's definitely one of the categories of fiction that goes out most, right? And including, like, there were some librarians who they always, like, you know, other librarians ask me what I read and we always joke about, like, ha, 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 I'm never going to read that, Joel. That sounds boring, you know? That's like, that's like my feature in the library discussions. But like, I told them about this one, and you could see, like, some people were kind of like, oh, that sounds too obtuse or obscure. And other people were like, oh, yeah, that sounds up my lane, you know? They love medieval What's that word like Hige? That means like everyone loves it right now, like the Scandinavian like comfort. Oh, aesthetic. Higa, or whatever. Higa yeah. yeah. I think it's Danish, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So, but it's kind of like so. There's a way in which like 14th century Norway appeals to like, actually a very popular strain of things. And I was thinking about genre novels. You and I are always talking about you know the nonsense of literary versus genre or whatever. But I, I do actually. I, I feel like I finally came up with like a, a somewhat decent you know, pitch for like how historical fiction, fantasy and sci-fi, like there is a really similar overlap of world building. And I kind of was like, you know what? The big difference is between like literary fiction and genre fiction. It might be as simple as like, um, hang on, let me find it. <laughs> it might be as simple as 30 know, seconds of silence. I know, I, I know. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I wrote it down so perfectly it's immediately like the context is immediately recognizable as contrived, right? So in sci-fi or fantasy, it's like, well, so Star Trek, welcome to the future. Like there's a certain utopia on earth and we're space explorers. No one thinks this is trying to tell you something about what it's like to be, you know, it's not trying to like give you details about the world we currently live in. Right. And so I think the same is true for like, honestly crime fiction as well but definitely fantasy and historical fiction you're immediately in this contrived space and i think it's why it turns some people off immediately because they don't want to like have the artifice so like you know like it feels cheap to them i think um but it also i think is why we can talk about literary historical fiction or literary fantasy versus sort of just like straight genre fantasy because i think that really well done historical or fantasy fiction or whatever um, as much as it might still participate in that world building and that kind of um, default, you know, obvious contriving, it works immediately to lessen that. You know what I mean? So, like, there's a way in which, like, as much as this book really cares about the 14th century, it also is consistently trying to um, – it's trying to decrease what you're familiar with and increase what you're not familiar with in a way that makes it feel kind of more, you know – more robust than just like, hey, this is a cool farm novel. Um, anyway, that was my that was my thought on genre stuff. That makes sense, right? <laughs> I think so. Yes. So, Bill, 
now that we've talked about nothing for 10 minutes, uh, what's this book about? <laughs> yeah, so the book is about uh, the life of this fictional woman, Kristen Laverne's daughter, who lives in Norway in the 14th century. Uh, we don't we get exact dates for some of it. I don't I didn't try to parse out exactly when she was born, but she dies in 1349. I know that for sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she's about 50 when she dies. So um, she is the daughter of a relatively wealthy landowner. Uh, he's not supremely important in Norwegian politics, but he's also, he, you know, he does get to go to the, the big meetings when they're called. Right. Uh, and she, it's, it's about her whole life as, you know, her starting when she's a child and the people she meets there through her marriage and then her ultimate uh, death. Uh, I think there are three main characters in the book that I'm going to just briefly talk about now, and then we'll hit details as we go, rather than trying to summarize this whole 1,100-page book, or we'll be here all day. So, again, Kristen is the the oldest daughter uh, and the oldest surviving child of Lavrons Bjorgelsen and Ronfrid... Oh, what's her last name? I don't recall. Anyway, Ivar's daughter? Ivar's daughter, maybe? Yeah, Ivar's daughter. Uh, and uh, she... Her, the, the big sort of animating thrust of the book is her ultimate marriage to a guy Erland Nikolausson and the fact that in doing so she sort of spurned this other guy Simon Andresen and that becomes sort of what the book is about is the in the first book it's watching that marriage take place and then in the second and the third book watching the fallout from that as uh, Kristen and Erland try to make a life and then Simon who is a neighbor uh, sort of what this does to him and how he lives. So Kristen is our first main character. She uh, at first is betrothed to Simon Andresen, who is a uh, a nice enough guy. She's actually not terribly upset about the betrothal when it starts, although she's not madly in love with him. But then when she's about 16 or 17, she meets Erland Nikolausen, who is kind of a heroic figure with sort of a dark past, right? And she decides she wants to marry him instead, and... Uh, ultimately does convince her father to let her do that, but she has to break the betrothal with Simon, and she's already pregnant by the time she gets married, and there's a great deal of scandal about that. Uh, they She moves with Erland to his wealthy manor at Husaby, discovers that he's a terrible, uh, sort of a terrible manager. His, his estate is, you know, incredibly wealthy and beautiful, but it's also in terrible shape. They ultimately end up having eight sons. I think I have all their names, but I'm not going to do it right now. Uh, <laughs> and Erland is always sort of getting in trouble and being sort of... Uh, generally irresponsible, but also sort of heroic and admirable. Uh, Simon is always in love with her. Uh, he actually ultimately ends up marrying her youngest sister, Ramborg. Yeah, real, real like, little woman hours, you know? Yeah, she's like 15 or 16 when he marries her. It's actually kind of creepy. Um, but uh, Kristen uh, is racked with guilt, more or less, from minute one after she gets married. Uh, she's worried that the child that she had conceived before she was married is going to be born deformed because she's worried about it and spends the rest of the book basically wondering whether she should have done it and and worried about how in doing so she hurt her father and and hurt Simone and you know what that's going to mean for her life. Erland is pretty fancy free ultimately ends up committing a uh, an act of, uh, of light treason, as they would say in Arrested <laughs> Development, and losing most of his estates. So they end up living on Kristen's father's estate. He, he's already dead by that point uh, because it's her property, not his. And so they end up living out their life there. Um, Simone um, has actually sort of a decent life, but one where he's constantly reminded of the fact that he didn't get to marry the woman he wants to. Erland gets himself killed, sort of heroically trying to defend Kristen's honor at one point. Right. Kristen goes off and becomes a nun. And then for the last like 30 pages of the book, the Black Plague shows up and kills everyone, including Kristen. Uh, but she sort of 
I don't know if redeems the right word, but she does manage to, right before she dies, do sort of a heroic thing where she she goes and she gets the body of a woman who was pretty well shunned by the people around the nunnery where she, she doesn't, so she doesn't actually become a nun. She's going to become a nun, but she dies before she can. Um, Kristen, I mean, but she goes and sort of rescues this body uh, and so it can be properly buried <clears throat> and stops the uh, good people of the nearby town from committing an act of human sacrifice to try to get the plague to go away. Of a boy. Of a boy. Of a boy. Yeah, yeah. Not even, like, I know human sacrifice is bad enough, but I do feel like it's worse when it's grown men sacrificing a, a child. <laughs> a child, yeah. That's, I mean, as, all the human, as human sacrifices go, this is a particularly bad one. I feel like that's one. the worst one. <laughs> uh, and, so, and that's, and she, she's probably already caught the plague, but, she, you know, that's when she, she notices she has the plague as right. they're, you know, carrying this woman's body out of the hovel where she died, and then she dies fast in, uh, in the nunnery. Um, and I think that the book is primarily about Kristen, of course, but we get a lot of portions from Simon or Erwin's perspective as well. We occasionally pop into somebody else's perspective, uh, but it's primarily that. And so it's about Kristen's sort of internal life, really, as this happens, because uh, she doesn't usually get to make very many choices. She's a, a woman in 14th century Norway, right? A lot of things happen to her, and we have to see how she feels about it, and this relationship with Erland, and, you know, the occasional toes that everyone involved primarily including Kristen dip into pagan magic uh <laughs> yeah uh, Kristen does at one point basically commit an act of what she perceives as black magic to try to save Simon's son who is sick and uh so it's the sort of book that could be made to sound very boilerplate historical fiction because yeah it's about a woman who wants to marry a man other than the one her father wants right. her to marry but it's really not that kind of book partly because that happens at the end of the first volume right and the rest of it is about the fallout of that which is not usually what you get in that story no right? usually totally. that story ends with her marrying the guy she wants to marry and going off to live happily ever after and that's not what happens i think that's really all i'm going to say at this point and we'll pick out specific moments as we go because that's really what you need to know Kristen was supposed to marry simon she marries erland they have a lot of kids but he erland is irresponsible and ultimately gets himself killed and then Kristen dies getting ready to become a nun uh i think that's really all we really that's need to arc. do at this point yeah i totally agree that was great, by the way. I, I think, so I was going to say, you know, you mentioned it, that um, it can sound very boilerplate. And that's kind of why I wanted to give that that little note about um, genre has this sort of like, you know, you kind of have to pay the price of dealing with the, the, the obvious simulation, right? That the, the scenery is, you know, fake from the beginning. And it can get better as you go. But I wanted to talk about, like, the ways in which you can't get around it. That I, I do think this book, its project is basically taking that storyline seriously, right? Like it's almost like the Game of Thrones of historical kind of like maiden falls in love fiction, right? Where it's like it's going to do all of the same, you know, kind of it's going to like take, you know, take all the tropes that you've always known about, only it's going to really, you know, at a level the Game of Thrones can't do. But like the idea is that it's going to take it seriously as actual people in an actual time dealing with, you know, internal and external strife that can feel very relatable and also very foreign. But I, I think what's funny is so because you immediately recognize the seriousness of the project, I think when people try to sell it, you know, they, they get into this, they get into this funny place of like, okay, how do I tell you that this saga of a woman falling in love and destroying lives, you know, for passion, like how do I tell you about it without, you know, with, with trying to make it sound more serious. And what I kept coming across was like this idea that Kristen or, uh, you know, basically, yeah, Krista was a stand-in in some ways for, like, the, you know, the 20th century woman or whatever. Like, in the, on the back of one of the copies I have of The Wreath, the first book, it says, 
The Wreath chronicles the courtship of a headstrong and passionate young woman um, and a dangerously charming and impetuous man. But but the story tells a uh, story Unset tells is a modern one. It mirrors post World War II political and religious anxieties. And Kristen emerges as a woman who not only loves with power and passion, but intrepidly confronts her sexuality. <laughs> and, uh, like, that's not untrue, <laughs> you know? But I actually think what's funny is what the book takes seriously is the time itself, not as a stand-in for all of our stuff that's currently happening. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's it's actually it's actually powerful because it's not an easy one-to-one analogy with war, post-World War One Europe. I mean, I'm sure post-World War One Europe has a lot more in common with sort of the struggles between sexual mores, religion, and so forth than, you know, right now, 100 years later. But I actually think her project seems explicitly to, like, say, no, this period deserves to be taken seriously kind of of its own accord. Yeah, um, but I but which I, I found I mean actually I found charming in some ways like I found I found it charming and disorienting, the ways in which she depicts this world like you mentioned like witchcraft and stuff this what's world that's both enchanted and also harsher and more violent like she really doesn't seem to be interested in making it an easy like, tale of you know female empowerment or a tale against female empowerment she's interested in these people kind of struggling, to just be in relationship you know yeah and I I should have said this already but just to give this some context Sigrid Unset. Uh, 1889 to 1945, she was uh, she was born in Denmark, but she, I think, is primarily understood as a Norwegian writer, and this book was written in Norwegian originally. Uh, three volumes, The Wreath, The Wife, and The Cross, or originally, what was it? Uh, Kransen, Husfru, and uh, Corset, or again, literally The Wreath, The Wife, and The Cross, published 1920, 1921, and 1922. It's very much one book. It is a three-volume novel. It is, I mean, it's technically a trilogy, I guess, but yeah. it's a trilogy the way The Lord of the Rings is. It's one book. Yeah. Um, if you if you just read the first book and then, like, came back five years later for the second book, you would have to read the first book again. <laughs> well, and actually, um, yeah. Well, and the, the second book in particular ends on, like, such a banal note. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah, really is just, like... Yeah, it's kind of a weird time. Yeah, it's a really, like, it's a great, like, scene, but the actual final lines and the final kind of description of who's involved is sort of unnecessary, you know? It's like, oh, this is how you're ending the book? But it's because she's not. The book continues in the next, you know, volume. Um, she, Unset uh, was, I guess, uh, and I still is, very important in Norwegian literature. I So I don't know a lot about Norwegian literature. Bill. But, like, when you Bill. look her up, you see a lot of people <laughs> saying that she's the greatest writer Norway has produced in the last couple hundred years. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, she won the Nobel Prize in 1928 pretty much for this book. She had written other stuff, some of which was also... 14th century Norway, uh, The Master of Hestviken was a four-volume novel, which actually has uh, Kristen's father and mother appear in for a minute, per Wikipedia. I have not read it. Um, <laughs> and uh, Unset actually wasn't Catholic when she wrote this, but she converted to Catholicism in 1924, so, you know. It's almost uh, like it she, wrote, Catholic novel. she like wrote herself into it, you know what I mean? Like, she must yeah, have... Like... I, I think... I think when you finish writing this book, you have to either become a devout Catholic or like a hardcore <laughs> I atheist. Think, I don't think there's any other option. I think that's totally um, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is. Uh, so it, I think it's kind of been f- not completely forgotten. I had heard of it before, but it's definitely not commonly known to the average reader, I think, in 2021. Although I do think it's getting a bit of a resurgence. This translation was a pretty big deal when it came out, I guess. I, ha- I had been seeing a lot of people mention it over the last year or so on Twitter in the sort of, you know, 
books and also mostly leftist Christian politics circle that I hang out in. So there are dozens <laughs> well, of us. Yeah, dozens. I was just going to say, all 12 uh, of us. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the book works really well as kind of a just a soap opera. You know, I think you can yes. read it for that, and I think it works. Uh, but it's doing a lot more than that. So I think we'll... Uh, We'll try to dig into it now, eh? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I actually, I, I know it, we, we love specifics, and, I, and you in particular are always telling us to get, you know, make sure we get back to the writing, but I, I actually did kind of want to, you have some big ideas listed in your outline, and I was curious if you wanted to kind of dig into, yeah, how this book tackles some of those. Yeah, so this, this is <clears throat> this is the kind of book that asks a couple of questions and then answers it in different ways with different characters, right? So you have like an idea, and then in different characters and their relationships with each other, we're going to see different people struggling with these questions, right? right. I think if I was going to pick one and say this is what the book is about, it's about the tension between your own personal desires and longings, right, with your own sense of responsibility towards your family and your society, and then also, and this is connected, your sense of responsibility to God, right? It's a yeah. book very much about... Um, faith and duty in that sense right uh, it's not a book about is there a god it's a book about what am i you know what are my, what are my duties to god and when i think that you know god's commandments would have me do x y and z but i really want to do something else you know how do i live with that and what are the consequences of it whichever i choose right right and so Kristen, obviously the big question for Kristen, which animates her life is this decision to marry erland uh and not only to marry him but to marry him under circumstances of significant scandal like they've been sleeping together for quite a while uh, she's pregnant by the time she gets married, well, and, and she also doesn't tell anybody that. You know what I mean? To, like so. And actually, so this is actually the complication that she introduces into some of this stuff from the beginning, as far as taking it seriously, is that you know, Erlen. They keep talking about how she, you know, she is seduced by him and how she goes along with it. But the first time that they sleep together, quote unquote, it's kind of a gray zone of how much he forces her how much he yeah. rapes her almost, right? Like, they never go that far. But the, even even in the text, she says she kind of just puts her hands up and lets him do whatever. And then afterward, you know, he's shamefaced and feels terrible, and so does she. And, you know, she says, I'm sure you would have stopped, you know, if, if I really had told you seriously. And he's like, I'm not sure I would have. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is an interesting love story beginning. You know what I mean? Like, it, like yeah. it, it's it's already kind of complicating the, the usual, like, passionate love affair st- storyline, you know? Yeah, and that's that's always I think like so, so. Which is one reason why I take some issue with the way you know the back of your book describes it, yeah. right? Because it is definitely partly about her, you know, having her own sexual desire, but it's a lot more complicated than that, right? She doesn't throw herself at Erland exactly. It's it is as you said, it's very gray. The consent is not entirely clear, and that con- con- continues throughout, right? Oh yeah, there is a bit. Uh, not the first time they sleep together where he talks about how he did use some amount of force to like get what he wanted on this other later occasion. And well, it's, I think it's, that's when he impregnates her, isn't it? Like what I think So she talks about I'd have to check, but I think Yeah, so. so when she's when she's pregnant before they get married and like actually like they're, they're almost about to get away with it, right? Like like they you know have been yeah. they've been sleeping together and he's a like disgraced man, but they've kind of convinced her father and everyone's gonna have this big wedding and then she's gonna be pregnant, like it's gonna have to be she's gonna have to be just soon enough after being, you know, married that everyone will know. You know, it was a betrothal baby, and uh, and she talks about you know she had told him no, like she was like very firm, and she's like annoyed with him for not listening. But it's more than that because clearly, like she brings it up twenty years later. You know what I mean? Like, like I get, I don't know. It's it is it is all, but but and yet, you know, it's never just a straightforward like you know he abuses her, right? It's never quite that easy. Yeah. And so, you know, Kristen's tensions between what she really wanted and then her sudden, once she's got what she wants, because she does want to marry him. Like, there's no question about yes, that. Yes, she right? loves him. Uh, but then 
her sort of realization about all the consequences this is going to have for everybody, right? Like people are going to mock her father, which she really doesn't like. She's hurt her father, which she doesn't like. Uh, she's terribly afraid that there's going to be something wrong with the baby um, because of the sort of sinful way that the baby, and there actually isn't uh, baby's fine. He's got a birthmark, but other than that, he's fine. Uh, but there's a lot of this sort of tension in her own mind. And then it comes back to haunt her towards the end, right? Because towards the end, she gets accused of adultery, which she didn't commit. Um, and the townsfolk are like, yeah, well, I mean, look at everything about your life. <laughs> why would <laughs> like, we not believe you, this? <laughs> why wouldn't we believe this? Um, and so this choice has consequences that echo throughout, not, not just obviously that she chose to marry him and therefore was married to him and not someone else, but the, the way she, she did it and the way it happened to her sort of at the same time, um, she never gets away from feeling complicated about it. Uh, so that's I, one of the big questions there is that, right? How does it feel to actually make this sort of authentic choice, right? Sort of against the strictures of your society. Yeah. And, you know, how you don't, you, you feel complicated about it. And that's something that many of the characters deal with. Erland feels weird about it throughout. I mean, Erland is not terribly self-reflective, but when he does <laughs> have moments of it, he feels complicated about it. Simone feels very complicated about it because, he, like I said, he ultimately ends up marrying Kristen's daughter or daughter, his uh, Kristen's sister, pardon me partly because he wants to and partly because it seems like the thing to do right and he goes to his deathbed still very much loving Kristen, and uh you know so, so these tensions uh, all of her sons when they're going growing up towards the end of the book and wanting to sort of make authentic choices if we'll put it that way while also being constrained by the fact they don't have any much money anymore because of the way their father screwed the pooch on that um, some of them decide to go to monasteries. Some of them go and become basically traveling mercenaries. Uh, and, you know, they're not the main characters of the book, but they're sort of complex feelings about what they want to do. And, you know, that's one of the main questions the book deals with, I yeah. think. Oh, yeah. Um, Kristen, obviously, in the most detail, and I think very compellingly. Uh, one thing that, you know, the book spends a lot of time in Kristen's head, but it's all very believable and, and very powerful, I think. I think so, too, yeah. Well, I, and I was going to I was gonna say, you know, once again, we find ourselves with the problem of, you know, how do we make the specific case for some of the stuff we're talking about? Um, specifically for me, like this book is not about how just how like how great love is and whatever, but it, it is a book about feeling strongly, right? Erland and Kristen are the two most willful people, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And and it, it is it is the question of like what it like what does it mean to suffer? Honestly, yeah. What does it mean to suffer because you love someone and because they love you? And so that's that, again, that can be a very cliche thing of like these wild, you know, almost how people try and sell Wuthering Heights, you know, which is insane. Um, <laughs> you know, like uh, man, I read Wuthering Heights this year, and that's a weird book. Not what you I thought. I thought about Wuthering yeah. Heights very much today, but that is a weird book. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a really weird book. Boy, I actually did not like it very much by the time I was done. I can't say it's badly yeah. written, but I came away from like, why did I read this? I hate everyone in this book. I hate every person in this book. <laughs> I, I, read, I like I liked it in college a lot. Actually, I haven't read it since college, but. Um, also, about you know, it was one of those like nights in Oxford where I like read it overnight, and then I like went bleary eyed to my tutor and like defended it, yeah. and that was like one of the first times that like she realized I was not an idiot. You know, she's like, "Oh, you remember some things specifically from the book?" I was like, "Yeah, I read this one. You know, this one I read." <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, so it could be a fondness for you know that that moment, but um, but no, so I I think I I I found myself I did find myself kind of um personally embroiled in this book in a, in a way that I, I was surprised by and the way that did make it hard to like, cause there were passages where I was like, I don't know, this is boring or, you know, or times when I was like, this is too much melodrama for Joel. You know, like I, I don't really care about this moment, but it, it kept kind of pulling me back in 
to the question of like, you know, how does it feel to suffer while pursuing, you know, so willfully what you want, which is kind of how I feel like I am and how everyone is. But like, I feel like I'm a strongly feeling willful person. That's like my whole, you know, reputation in my family. Unfortunately, it's, you know, I'm nice too. I'm fun, (laughs) you know, I make jokes. Um, But, uh, but no, but like, so like the tension there of, you know, not just getting what you want and how it destroys you, but getting what you want. And it's, it's actually kind of a good thing. And it still kind of destroys you. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's not like a simple thing where like that good thing no longer becomes good. I do think this is one of the more powerful books I've read about parenting, um, the ways in which she suffers in anxiety for her children and the way that she's disillusioned about how motherhood actually feels versus how she thought it would feel. And also marriage. Like she has this tempestuous, crazy marriage. But um, one person at one point says like, you know, uh, uh, one of the priests tells her at the end of the book, you know, Kristen, your anger is maybe like, you probably held on to it so hard toward Erland, your husband, because it was one of the things that kept him to you. You know, you were the only thing, you were the only person in the world that he like felt bad about or thought about beyond like a month, right? Like he's this kind yeah. of like, he's kind of this like, you know, he's not an idiot, but he's kind of one of those like, when he, he's one of these truly carefree people where he's like, oh, that was 20 years ago. You're still mad that like I've stabbed you in the back? Like, oh, it's, you know, what's the deal, you know? <laughs> um, but not with Kristen. With Kristen, he feels something more sincere. And it was interesting, like, I, I love that. Even Kristen talks about how she can't let go of her bitterness toward Erland because that would mean letting go of Erland. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. there was this constant complication of like, you know, how wanting something so badly ruins it, but also how wanting something good, you know, what else are you supposed to do with your life? Right? Like, how do we escape it? And yet the suffering will come anyway. And so it's hard because it does, it boils down to some, maybe basic sounding philosophy, but the, the specifics of, you know, the ways in which she's surprised by death or violence. And I, I, I did, I found it, I found it both profound, partly because I think Unset has like a, a true psychological depth to her writing. Like the relationships are constantly in tension with each other. The different stages of life are constantly requiring different, like, you know, dynamics, you know, when she's a mother-in-law who's no longer wanted, um, I was reminded of my mom, you know, the strong woman who's trying to, you know, how do we figure out the balance of her helping raise our kids, but, you know, not be in charge of everything like she has been her whole life, you know? And I did. I found it very profound on that kind of like social relational level. Um, but it made it harder to sometimes judge like, how good is this book? Because is it just like Joel having feelings? Like that's a good thing for Joel, but <laughs> I don't know what that means for the book, you know? So I, I did want to, we can, we can pivot, you know, I was going to ask you, so I, I, so, well, I'll start with this one. Do you hate Erland? <laughs> so a little bit, right? Uh, he, he definitely, he, he's capable of almost always making the worst possible decision at any given point in time. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there's a lot of times when if he would just calm down for five minutes, everything <laughs> would be okay. He, you know, if he wanted to marry Kristen, with such, you know, fervor, that's fine maybe, right? But maybe he doesn't need to. At one point, he actually comes up with some armed men and is going to, like, take her by force from her father. That doesn't end up actually happening for reasons we might get into later. Well, no, like, no, no. That, no. What a terrible we, we, we idea. We should get into it because been. it doesn't happen because he, uh, he basically, he and Kristen goad his current paramour into killing herself. Killing herself, <laughs> yeah. Like, so it doesn't happen because <laughs> a worse thing happens that he didn't prevent. Yeah. So... 
Erland, one reason Erland is sort of a, a scandalous choice here is because he's been involved in this pretty long relationship with another man's wife. Uh, it started when he was like 18, right? And she's she's a bit older than he is. Uh, Eileen is her name. And uh, he, by the time he meets Kristen, that relationship is essentially over, except that it's not really because she still kind of lives at his house. And he has two children with her, Orm and Margaret. And he actually got himself excommunicated for a while because of the way he was carrying on. Uh, and so this woman is still sort of around when he and Kristen decide to get married and she shows up at Haugen, which is a nearby house where Erlen's like aunt and sort of the local sort of fun witchy aunt <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the also, town Yeah, also disgraced. <laughs> uh, Fru Ashfield, who's a great character, um, and I'm worried we're not going to get to talk about her very much, but she's great. She is great. Uh, and... They show up at the house, you know, Erwin shows up there and Kristen steals away because they're going to, he's going to ride off with her, you know, not kidnap her because she's on board. But, you know, as far as her father's concerned, essentially kidnap her. But then, yeah, she shows up and she's going to try to poison Kristen. Uh, but then Erwin sort of breaks in and Kristen realizes it's what's happening. And, yeah, they basically convince her to kill herself more or less on purpose. Yeah. Uh, and, and to be fair, she, she has just <laughs> tried to basically kill Kristen, right? Like. Yeah. She tries to poison Kristen, and then, you know, things escalate. So she's not exactly, like, with, you know, she's part of the murderous energy in the room, but st- still not great when you're like, ah, I was going to take you away, Kristen, but I did just help kill this woman instead, and we've got to postpone this until her body is buried somewhere else in secret. <laughs> so instead I have to, like, dress her up and ride, her, uh, yeah. ride with her in a, her corpse in a wagon, and so we can tell her yeah, when she so, died because it's cold right? enough the corpse won't show any signs of when it died. But I'll be back yeah. for you later. <laughs> uh, you know, and so, like, Erl- if Erland hadn't done that, uh, things would be better. And if Erland had just kept it in his pants for a little bit longer, she wouldn't have been pregnant when she was married, which would have saved them all a lot of heartache later. And then he he gets this... So th- th- the book is set in a you know a specific time, and there are characters in the book who are real people, right? King Magnus is a real person. Right. Erling Vidkinson is a real person. We don't need to talk about who he is, but like some of these, and actually Moon and Bardson, who was like Erwin's cousin, that's actually a real guy too. I looked it up. Yeah, that one I didn't um, know. So uh, there is some significant political upheaval going on in 14th century Norway at the time, I guess. I didn't know the first thing about it, but uh, Norway and Sweden are united under one crown, and the Norwegians are mad about it because the Swedes are always pushing them around. Uh, they don't like the king very much because he's kind of cruel and also probably secretly gay. Uh, and of course, you can't. We can't have that. Uh, and so, Erland helps concoct this sort of scheme to basically transfer the Norwegian crown to this other guy, and sort of still be under King Magnus's sort of overall rule. And it's actually not a bad idea. Uh, a lot of people seem to think it would work, and I think something like it is more or less what ends up happening. Right. Um, but because Erland is mad at Kristen, he cheats on her with this <laughs> sort of sort of conniving woman. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't even like her. No, he's he just mad her. at Kristen <laughs> yeah. at the time. And he leaves the letters that say, here's my evil plan, and his paramour finds it, and after he sort of breaks it off with her, she tells a bunch of people, like, hey, by the way, Erland is committing treason. Uh, and so it results in Erland being tortured for a while and then losing all of his valuable property. And, you know, so if he had just either A, not had an affair, or B, not left his incriminating documents all over the place, uh, you know, his life would be better. Uh, and then towards the end, so Kristen gets accused of adultery, and uh, it's looking kind of bad, like they're going to put her on trial, and it's it's maybe not going to be great. And Erland has been living in the woods, sort of like a wild man for a while, because he and Kristen have had a big fight. And like he didn't come back when her last child was born. He's been behaving like a real spoiled brat. 
but one of his sons goes up and gets him and he comes riding into town you know shining armor how dare you and picks a fight and gets killed <laughs> no <laughs> Which, I, I guess know. does kind of resolve the issue about the like they don't even ever mention it again it's so clearly everyone kind of looks what happens yeah. and, well he they, he must have really thought she'd stayed faithful to him and now he's dead so we're just not going to worry about this anymore clearly is what happens because they, they just skip four years ahead the next chapter uh, and so if at any point Erland had calmed the heck down all of their lives would have been better at the same time he is incredibly charming and he's got this kind of inability to remember or his inability to like really think about the future also makes him kind of endearing because he he's never really deliberately cruel for more than about a second you know what i mean he makes a lot oh, of bad no. choices yes he's 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 newborn every day you know yeah he you know he's incapable of really holding a grudge like he's astonished when it turns out that simone is still mad at him 20 years later for stealing his girl like he's like oh, you hate me wow like do you hate me is actually the line yeah and simone's like i mean yeah kind of yeah dude <laughs> And Erland is astonished by that, and he's, he's, I think he's a really cool character study, because he also, he'll say things all the time, like, I've never betrayed Kristen. Well, never mind those things that happened in the North when I was at war, that doesn't no count. One nobody would, would count no that, No one would hold right? that against me, I was in the yeah, war. nobody would count that. <laughs> or another point when he's, he's sort of on trial, he says something about, you know, I've never betrayed anyone's trust who ever had reason to trust me, and Simon is the one who's sort of narrating at the time, it's all third person, but it's, and Simon's like, he realizes he really believes that about himself. Like, he thinks that's true. It's not true, but he thinks it's true. And that's kind of what I mean. Like, I, I, the psychological depth is so great because there is this, there really is this new, like, you know, everyone talks about him being young. And there's this way in which every situation to prove himself, it is like a totally clean slate in his mind, right? So, like, um, so once he's already made the mistake of taking, you know, a lover who's not Kristen and then leaving his letters around and later saying, oh, she just seems so stupid. I didn't think she could read. Like that was his, yeah. you know? And then so he's already, so he's already like broken trust with his wife and his co-conspirators in the dumbest way possible. But then he's, he's like tortured and he's, you know, like actually everyone's mad about it because it's not the Norwegian way. Like the King's, you know, like French buddies, Italian buddies, whatever, come in and torture him. And um, he doesn't break and he doesn't break at all. And like, in fact, even after he's released and kind of, you know, allowed to stay in the country, like there's a whole brouhaha when, um, you know, basically his son forces him to maybe tell what's going on. He still won't tell. And so it's, it's, it is this bizarre like way in which he is so steadfast. He's like a man of action once, you know, the going gets as rough as possible. But it's because he's forgotten what he already did. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way he yeah. could have kept his tongue if he if he didn't think that he was a true man, right? Like, he does actually need that belief to survive torture, even though that belief is what makes him a terrible person to you know have a marriage with, for example. Um, but I do. But that's that's constantly. She's constantly doing that. And, I, and it was really clever, of course, which every book does. It's a good book. Is that you know I think everyone talks about characters being you know. Um, you have to like make them, you know, like round versus flat, right? And how you make them round is they have, you know, like different surpri surprising, you know, things about them or whatever. But what what I think also, you know, is really important is establishing someone's kind of consistency from different angles. And so even though like um, Simon, you know, was it Simon, right? Um, yeah, Simon. Yeah, Simon and Kristen and her father Lavrens, they all kind of see, you know, they see. Erland from very different perspectives and they disagree on a lot of things about him, but like this, there's, there's consistency to his charm and his stupidity <laughs> that is like constantly <laughs> reinforced in different ways. Um, but no, I, I, but I do also hate him. I, I mean, but I actually feel like the book does a good job making me both love him and hate him. You know what I mean? Like I actually am fascinated by him. And also when he doesn't come, 
to Kristen when she's having her eighth kid. And that's the kid that everyone thinks was maybe born of adultery because no one knows she had seen her husband. And her husband doesn't come back from yeah. birth. And like all this stuff, like, you know, she may have screwed up a little bit, but like that, that, that was it. You know, that was the moment where it was like, and actually the book agrees. Like the book kills him for it, I think. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. And, and Kristen even says, like, he has no one to blame but himself, you know, and he can never actually take responsibility. But yeah, I, but it, it, like, but then he's just, he is one of the more fascinating people. But like, I think most characters who she spends any time with, they eventually get that level of depth. You know what I mean? Like you eventually get these, these different competing psychological motivations that are displayed through their own point of view and through other people's point of views. So like even, you know, Simon, he, at first he seems very basic and steadfast and you learn all about his sort of, you know, secret, you know, vices and so forth. And I, I, yeah, it was really, really well done every time, but Erland, especially he gets under your skin, you know, in both good and bad ways. But of course that's how Kristen feels about it. Right. Yeah. Like even, even towards the end when she's, she's sort of trying to reconcile with him, she at one point right before she does she says she can't bear to be around him anymore and then like a minute later he walks in the door and she's like well never mind i'll figure it out you know but you know she she has that feeling of real love and hatred at the same time and i think the book does a great job of making you feel that with her because you see why she loves him but at the same time you see that he's made her life in many ways immeasurably worse (laughs) no totally Um, yeah totally and that's you know i don't want to get into too much detail here but like so Unset was in kind of a messy marriage. It actually right. fell apart a few years after she published this book. I don't know a lot about it biographically, but this is the sort of book that you can only write maybe if you've actually been through like an unhappy marriage, right? And uh, having been divorced, I can say that parts of that feel very, <laughs> very accurate, right? Yeah. Uh, like this sort of complicated mess of of uh, hating someone more than you've ever hated anything in your life, but also loving them more, you know what I mean? All at but the same it's, time. it's only because you gave them your love, right? Like you trust yeah, them with exactly. your love and that's why you're so mad. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's a very compelling uh, portrayal of a, uh, not exactly a failed marriage, because it doesn't, you're right, but like a, a very messy, an unhealthy marriage that is nevertheless very interesting. Right. Um, and so, yeah, and I kind of hate Erland, but at the same time, it's hard to, it's hard to hate him. not also yeah. sort of like him. And, you know, you can also see all the, his mistakes feel very human, you know what I mean? Like, the way he self-deceives is, I think, a lot of us do that. You know, you have a picture of yourself that refuses to change, even though all the facts don't <laughs> really line up for that. Well, and I love, and I, so I think, you know, she does a really good job kind of reinforcing the way in which there's this bizarre innocence to him. Like, so, like, you know, because he doesn't think drinking is a big deal, he actually never gets drunk. He always just has a few beers yeah. and doesn't, you know, essentially, doesn't, doesn't really, like, ever go in for big drinking. And, and same with women. He even talks about, like, he's actually been with less women than almost everyone he knows but he just keeps choosing the wrong women, <laughs> you know, like he, like his choices are bad, but he's actually like not, he's not less temperate in some ways. He's just um, less wise. Right. Well, that's, that's one of the things I also think is interesting. The book is also partly about, you know, it's, it is about the sort of sexual ethic and hypocrisy that was rampant at the time. Right. Because the, the major sins that get people in trouble in the book are primarily sexual sins, right? Like people straight up murder other people and it's not a big deal. Oh yeah, totally. Right? Like Simon gets into a fight, straight up kills a guy yep. uh, for not like a great, re- it's sort of in self-defense, but he also kind of started it. Right. Yeah. And he has to like say some prayers and donate some money in the book, like never talks about it again. Yeah. He's, right? he's still like, and he's still, a, he's like the best guy. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's really well respected in the community. And like, at no point do we hear anybody say, yeah, remember that time Simon killed a guy? Like they don't ever, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, that's not a big deal. The violent actions, can get you killed, right? right? And they a lot of the times they do. People die uh, from violence a lot in this book. But that's not the sort of stuff that really 
upsets the society, right? It's all of these sort of sexual sins. But everyone commits them, with the exception of maybe Laverance, right? right. Uh, Kristen's father. You know, Simon has a bastard uh, that he just kind of has because he's angry at one point. And no one, I think, ever gives him trouble about it, right? Uh, uh, some of Kristen's kids father children who out of wedlock who mostly end up... Um, dying. The kids uh, die. D- dying, yeah. most of them. Uh, and that's not the stuff that really gets people worked up, right? One of her sons d- does actually kidnap a woman. Or again, she's on board with it. Uh, and that's a big thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, very few people actually manage to abide by this particular sexual ethic. Um, and, and yet some of the sins that people commit in public with that, it ruins their lives. Uh, anyway, even though, you know, and it's all sort of, it's partly about the sinning against the, the other men involved, right? Like it's one thing to knock up an unmarried woman. It's another thing to steal a man's daughter. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's obviously a lot of what the, the book is about is this, the way these women are essentially property, right? I mean, the book doesn't hit it too hard. It just portrays it. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't ever have Kristen sort of yelling at the sky about the fact that she's, you know, not treated as an equal or whatever. That never does that. But the book never, you know, you can't get away from the fact that this is what a lot of what the book is about, right? Is this, possession right it, it, it is fascinating how it actually does sort of it makes the argument against the system more effectively if you want that you know if that if like if your goal is to find an argument for why the system is terrible it it gives you all of that right it's what you're saying like it gives you plenty of evidence for why you know <laughs> women being passed around for like inheritance rights was horrible you know not a good thing yeah but it is fascinating because but it also it also doesn't take the cheap out which is to be like how could anyone ever think this way right it's like it doesn't even ask that question it says look here's the context here's the time here's how these people struggled with it and struggled against it and struggled within it you know like uh, like this idea of like kristen as any kind of proto you know like pro-sex 20th century person is ridiculous on so many levels. One of which is because one of her worst fights with um, Erland is she yells at him basically for not being more her lord and master is like the language yeah. she uses. And so which I found I found really compelling because okay they have the values of the time, right? They both kind of understand the values of the time and um, they accept the values of the time, which are foreign to me. But they're still having the same marriage arguments. Do you know what I mean? Like she's basically yeah. mad at him for not doing, you know, not doing what she wants, and she's like nagging him. You know, it's like you can make it very stereotypical. Right? She's nagging him, and he's like, "Leave me alone. I don't want to be in charge of your life." You know, whatever, right? Like, but they're arguing about values that are totally foreign to me. But it makes those values feel less inexplicable because of how she discusses them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't find any, any more sympathy for them, but they seem sort of like less unreal or less impossible to understand because they, they quickly become a lot more similar to stuff that we struggle with, right? Like the sort of limitations we all feel about like, you know, money and societal roles, all that stuff felt a lot more in common with this 14th century family than I was expecting because of how she handled handled it mostly in terms of relationship power dynamics, right? Like who has the upper yeah. hand? Well, it's still, yeah, it's, it's within in this weird cultural context, but these are still fights that like I do recognize having, you know? Well, that's uh, one of the great strengths of the book is the way, you know, it, these are just people, right? Oh, and yeah. These are just people having all the same problems everyone else has, just in a very different cultural context, which makes the cultural context simultaneously more relatable and that you can start to understand 
you know, cause you get something like this, which is just very foreign and repellent to 21st century. Of people, course, right. right. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, but I, I start to understand how people lived in it now. You know, it also makes it throws it in more stark relief when you see people you recognize struggling with it. Does well, that make sense? yes, rather than sort of yeah. caricatures. No, and I, I think also it makes it really like this is where historical fiction in any kind of genre of fiction, any kind of fiction period, really, it can't ever totally escape that um, projection impulse of the reader. You know, at some point you're going to ask yourself, or you're going to some point you're going to relate to it, right? You're going to just reach out and relate to it in some fashion, however that is. I think with almost every story, but especially with historical fiction, which always sort of inherently gives you a different perspective on our own cultural limits, right? And I, I do think there's a way in which the the relentlessness with which these characters trying to pursue the right thing within the the limits of what can be done, you know, like Kristen talks about at one point, she feels terrible for these children who are born to noblemen as bastards, right? She thinks that they have a terrible law. And everyone agrees. Everyone's like, yeah, this is horrible. It's the law of the land is, you know, is, is so hard on this one issue, but what are you going to do? But, but it makes it more, um, it does make it more relatable as far as like, they were trying to solve a lot of the same problems. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's actually what can be scary about it to me is like they were trying to solve problems of, you know, heartbreak or, po- you know, whatever, right? Like, you know, like her father wants to marry her off well because into a good man because he doesn't want her to be impoverished. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's this way in which he's trying to do the same thing as every person who's putting their kid in, in you know, college track preschool, right? That's the same thing at some level. Um, of course, it's not because of the experience the kid has, but it does make it a little more uncanny that they're trying to solve the same problem, I think. Um, and I, I, real quick, as we're on this note of like, you know, them being real people, it ties into my argument for her psychological depth. One of the moments where I feel like um, she would just never stop kind of chewing on whatever characteristics she had put into someone, she never left them alone. So like Lovren's is, is Kristen's father and he's like a good man, right? He's like the good man. <laughs> you know, he's beautiful. He's good at what he does. <laughs> you know, like he's made money. He's super, super Christian. Right. And, and she kind of complicates him throughout the book, but the climax of the, the first novel, the wreath, you know, is basically Kristen getting married. And then actually, it's the aftermath of, you know, Laverne's, her father, and Rongfried, or whatever it is, her mother. Um, they kind of, you know, they're outside, and they're base you know, Laverne's is basically upset and drunk. And he, uh, he's, you know, his wife confronts him, and he's like, she's like, what's going on? And he says, you know, when they take, you know, weird, weird customs, when they take, when they, when they took the bridal, <laughs> the bride and the groom to the bridal chamber and left them there half naked to consummate the marriage, which everyone's watching until the very moment they, you know, get in bed. <laughs> uh, he said, you know, he saw his daughter look frankly at the nakedness of, you know, her husband. And he's like, there's no way they waited, you know, like before anyone's told him or she's had a baby. Yeah. He's like, there's no way they waited to have sex. They didn't. And that's like, you know, a very, very big deal for him. But I, she didn't leave it alone. It wasn't just the disappointment of his daughter kind of betraying him, lying to him, whatever, which, you know, breaks his heart. He also goes further and, and basically says to Rongfeed, the way they looked at each other, these two, with passion, he's like, you and I never had that. 
You know, like we, I, like, so it's this great mingling of his moral disappointment with his personal disappointment, right? That he also, beyond being aggrieved that his daughter lied to him and betrayed his trust in this society's kind of, you know, context, he also feels this personal disappointment that like, oh, crap, you know, like, I, I think I have been burying how much I also wanted to have passion in my life and I never have, you know, and I found it like I found it both very moving and profound and Rongfried's response is also, you know, I think very moving. But but again, like th- that to me, like it felt not only like how real life feels, you know, but also it surprised me. And she did that continually where she would take the extra step into a, a place of depth that I, I wouldn't always see coming, you know, um, especially with people who are good. Like Kristen's this holy, holy person. But, you know, as, as Erlen calls her, she's a holy witch, you know, like she like does witchcraft, literally witchcraft, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and like on the Lovren scene, you're talking about not only that he'd never had this, he never loved anybody is what he says at one point, yes, right? Like yes. he, he'd never really loved anybody, but he also knows it's his fault, right? Because Ronfred wanted that. That's actually one of the right. tensions in there. Like she wanted a more sort of passionate, I mean, sex life, frankly. Yeah, right? yeah. And he wouldn't, I mean, they, they did have sex. They had like six kids, right? But they, he wouldn't give it, give her a more sort of passionate embrace, right? And he knows that it's kind of his fault, uh, that he, he was afraid and, and nervous and, and hung up on sort of his own personal piety. And so he didn't do that. And he feels bad about it. Not only because he didn't get to experience that sort of passionate but he kept love, it from, but he also yeah. kind of denied it to his wife. Totally. Um, and yes, I mean, that's, that's a lot more depth and interest than you often get from the sort of kindly father in this story, right? <laughs> right. Like it's, he's, he's a lot more complicated than that. I think he's, he's one of my favorite characters in the book. Easily. Actually. He dies yeah, easily. Oh, halfway through the second book. Um, but he's, he's really interesting and really cool. And he also hovers over the rest of the book because Simon, the guy that Kristen was supposed to marry, loves him, right? Uh, he, he, even as he's dying, he's thinking about Lavrens, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot more than he ever thinks about his own parents. Right. Um, and the way Lavrens was like respected, but generally quiet in public is something which comes back, you know, several times, even after he's dead, when they're talking about like what political power, you know, Kristen's husband, Ireland might or might not have and how it's different from what Lavrens had. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a really interesting character. I, well, and I think he in particular, but more than just him, I I did find the book to be a somewhat profound defense of goodness. You know, like we joked when I was in Syracuse, like um, uh, George Saunders teaches at Syracuse and his, his book came out, um, Lincoln and the Bardo, when we were there. And one of the other professors was talking about it. And, they, you know, they'd read an advanced copy. And we were kind of talking in class one day about how hard it is to like – portray goodness you know like um almost the old c.s lewis thing about like easier to make you know satan the main character because we're all pretty crappy people um but you know and one of the precious point was like you know george saunders he 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 really does he really does want to make the world a better place and his fiction really does seem to like go after that in in a in a way that's not cheap you know or whatever and and i i, I kind of felt the same way about this book where like because these people who are so good continually one come to grief and two come to grief like you said from their own piety often from their own excess even though it's a you know a good thing it's still an excess i did i found it profound I, partly again i mean like I'm, you know i'm just an idiot from colorado but like truly like i i've been trying to be good all my life you know like it's been a big part of my life the idea of being moral and doing the right thing and then, like, and even, like, I feel like I've, I've hit a lot of the steps you're supposed to hit, you know? And then all of a sudden I found myself, you know, two years ago especially, like, bewildered by why life was so hard. You know what I mean? Like, why like, why is everything, like, that I wanted 
making life bad. You know what I mean? Like, and why am I making what I wanted bad? Um, without giving you the diary of Joel Cuthbertson, but truly, I think, I think everyone has that to some extent. Who's trying to have a bad life, you know? And yet, your efforts, even when you succeed, so often kind of have this grief attached to them. Um, yeah. Oh, one thing before I forget, um, on the subject of complexity, there's actually a way in which sometimes she makes, she make, you know, she she uses humor to make it more complex or whatever, like, or at least I don't know makes Erlen more complex. Like when he goes to like have an affair, you know, with, with his paramour, he thinks is stupid and hates, um, or whatever, <laughs> you know, like he keeps thinking about Kristen, you know? <laughs> and I actually, I found his monologue really funny. <laughs> like he, like he can't, like he's, he's truly like befuddled at like what to do with her. He's like, you know, and actually he hit her, which is not funny, you know, in the book, the book doesn't think it's funny either, but he's like, I'm right. But then I can never win. Cause I get too angry and I don't know what to do with her. She's a witch. She's a, she's so holy, but she's all, she's a holy witch, you know, <laughs> like he doesn't like he, but it's really funny. And so it's a weird way in which like, um, his own innocence and his own childishness comes through in that moment. And what he does almost seems light, you know, like, like he does have this affair lightly, and then only afterwards does he realize he's just destroyed everything, you know? Um, but it still made it, yeah, it still kind of made it more complicated than just like, oh, he's doing this terrible thing that's so terrible, you know? It didn't didn't have kind of that moral boringness to it, you know? What I think one of the best lines in the book is the line that his paramour, uh, Suniva Olaf's daughter, has. Because she's kind of realized that, I mean, she's she's not thinking that everyone's going to leave Chris and marry her, right? She's right. just kind of looking to have a good time. But... Uh, at one point when she realizes that what's really going on, she says, am I the whip you use yep. to punish your wife? And I think that's one of the better lines in the book. Cause it's a little bit funny, but it's also, yeah, it's exactly what you are. Yeah, you're perfect. not a real person. I mean, you are, but you're not, yeah. you know, you're, you are an instrument that he's using to punish his wife. He's not even <laughs> enjoying this. Yeah. Like he's not, this is not, you know, and that's, you know, uh, that's a good line. That also has a lot of complexity to it. So I want to, um, so I, I want to come back to some, some of your other big ideas, but I, I did, you know, I'm usually the person who I'm doing it this podcast. I, I can't help sometimes, but like go, you know, I, I abstract stuff, right? Like I, I immediately like think, so I'll give you an example. So this book is about Christianity, you know, and to some extent, right? Or what I actually would say, is it's, it's a book about what it feels like to be a Christian, maybe um, in the 14th century, at least. But it's also, like you said, it's also interwoven with these, you know, Norwegian pagan practice, practices and traditions, you know, like the country is still kind of half pagan and uh, Fru Ashild, who we mentioned earlier, Erlen's aunt, she like kind of, li- you know, she lives near Kristen and she teaches Kristen her witchy ways. And then Kristen does some like truly witchy things, right? Like, uh, and, she, and yeah. she's always right. Like, except for once when she thinks she's having a daughter, she's never wrong with her like superstitions. You know what I mean? Like she's going to have a son. She yeah. has a son. The son's going to have fire marks on him from when she touched her heart looking at a fire and he has a birthmark. You know what I mean? Like. And then, yeah. and then, yeah, this one kid, you know, and actually there's two big ones. She saves uh, Simone's kid, right, uh, by going to a graveyard and digging up dirt and putting on him this weird thing, like carrying like, you know, ghosts with her is what she feels like she's doing. It's a pretty great scene, actually. Like it has some true like yeah. tension and I wouldn't say horror, but kind of, you know. And another scene, you know, when her own infant dies, her youngest kid, you know, she gives him Erlen's name. And you're not supposed to, yeah. you're not supposed to do that when the other person's alive. And from the moment she gives the boy, you know, his father's name, he like weakens and dies. And the implication is that, you know, she doesn't, you know, like she's accused of helping it, but the implication is that it just happens sort of because of the superstition. Anyway, 
So I love all that stuff. And I, I, I said it in detail because I actually love the thing itself. But I think it can be tempting in this book to, you know, say, okay, so here's Christianity versus magic, right? Those two are at odds explicitly in the book. And I think there's, of course, a symbolic reading of that, which is that magic is supposed to stand for Christian's willfulness. She is so good at magic because she is so willful. Magic is just sort of the will expressed into nature or into physicality, whereas Christianity is about giving up the will, kind of submitting to God and not trying to dominate nature to your own ends, right? But what what I love about the book is like, I got all that, like that higher level stuff is there and I really enjoy it. But this book loves the actual like practices it describes. You know what I mean? Like it loves yeah. telling you about trolls. It loves telling you about the, um, the elf slash dwarf maiden that Kristen sees when she's a child at the very beginning of the novel. She goes to the mountains with her father and his men, and she wanders off like after a horse, basically. And there's like an elf maiden that rises up like green, <laughs> whatever, with full breasts, I think it says. You know, it's like really this weird moment. And she puts a wreath on Kristen's head, and Kristen wanders back, and everyone else can see the wreath. You know, like she has a wreath on her head. It's not, it's not an imag- imaginary wreath, you know, whatever happened or didn't happen. And, um, and I, for, it, I, I think the book kind of did it did sort of enchant me, partly because of how much it loves the specific things it's talking about, and not just it doesn't just love them as symbols. You know what I mean? And so even though the symbolism is there, like you really do get lost in sort of the materiality of the world, and and really like you've said, the specificity of the characters, um, they go together because a lot of times the interiority is just another fact of the world, right? You just get the facts of someone's insides without a lot of like commentary on whether they should or shouldn't think it, or even, you know, you know, how, how, how emotional it is, what they're feeling. You just told they feel emotional. Um, I love that. I love that the magic is sort of charming on its own without the symbolism. Well, and the, you know, the, the religious practices she describes are also really, uh, you know, she goes into a lot of detail on those and those are also really beautiful. Uh, Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, in particular, there's a there's a couple moments when she like interacts with a like relics, right? There's a the, the cult of the saints is obviously very important in 14th century Norway at this point, right. um, and she has this real rapturous. She takes she does a pilgrimage to Nidaros uh, to go to this shrine for Saint Olaf, who is the I looked him up a little bit more. Uh, the book tells you a lot about him. Uh, he was this major king in Norway who really is the one who like Christianized Norway, I guess, right? Um, and so he was a really important national figure as well as a religious figure in Norway at this point. And she has this really rapturous experience as she goes to his shrine, right? Um, and there's also a really wonderful scene, uh, part with you, I think it's the third book, where there's a, there's, a huge, there's a bunch of flooding starting to happen, right? Because obviously you get a lot of snow and then the snow goes somewhere and it, it's, it's, it's a recurring problem in the book. Is, well, there's a flood which is just washing away people's houses. Right. But there's one really bad one where... Uh, it's been it's been really bad, and they're just going to destroy this bridge, which is going to make life just very hard for everybody. And so the priest and all of the men in the in the village, including Erland, who comes down from where he's been hiding in the woods, um, just carry the cross over to the bridge and sing and pray, uh, and then come back. Right, and the the flood is so bad it's actually carried up a whole house down down the <laughs> river, yeah. and the house you know slams into the bridge and. All these people, including like every man that you know, Kristen knows at this point, is standing on the bridge as this is happening, and she's you know freaking out. Uh, and it's just this really beautiful scene, uh, not only in how it's written, but in the way it you know 
the book I don't think actually is proposing that there are actually magic or miracles happening, right? But everyone believes in it so much that it kind of it, it, is it, what it might as well be. You know yeah, I mean? no, it might like, as well be. Yeah, like that's probably not actually an elf maiden, right? That was probably just some lady in the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? But because because everyone believes it so much, right? It, it is actually enough. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and similarly, you know, they saved the bridge by praying. You know, is that what actually happened? Probably not, right? But because everyone believes it so uh, completely in the logic of the of the religious practices and the logic of the story, that it is what happened in the story. Do you know what I mean? Even though Unset, I don't think, would actually be arguing that that is literally what happened. It is certainly what happened as far as every single character Behaves. I, Do you know what I, I mean? was gonna say. I think, I think I think the story is told in such a way that I I actually think it, it it can be even more ambiguous than that. Like I think we don't think it probably happens, right? And I think the characters, like you know, I think you're right that that like their belief and their actions are such that it doesn't matter, you know, if like we, yeah. we think they're having a delusion versus it's a miracle. But what I find fascinating is is how moving the moments are whether or not you think it's real and, and how much the book is open to them being real. So like after she completes her pilgrimage um, to Nidoros, Kristen has a vision, right? Of not only St. Olaf, yeah. she has this whole dialogue with St. Olaf, but she also has a vision some point in that trip um, of brother Edvin, who we haven't talked about, who's also a great character. Um, someone she actually knew who died and um, you know, it changes her. But of course, actually it reminded me of the end of, um, Anna Karenina, when Lev kind of has a conversion experience, these changes are, I think, are so meaningful and obviously, you know, important to her. And yet, of course, like, you know, she gets pissed at Erland again, right? Like, things still boil over. Like, you can have these great moments that don't necessarily, like, that do change you forever and don't necessarily, re- you know, relieve you of <laughs> the problems of the world. But I, th- I, but like, you know, her son at one point who's going blind and in a monastery, he talks about seeing his mother. Or like he and his brother will see his mother before Christmas, and then they all die of the Black Plague before Christmas. And, you know, she says, oh, his, you know, Borgoff's, you know, vision came true. You know, like that's, well, that's kind of like, you know, post hoc argument. Like, you know, you're dying now. You're interpreting the dream as a vision of heaven. But, like, but there's a way in which, like, it's it's kind of open-ended. You know what I mean? Like, like does her magic save Simone's child? I mean, I don't know. The kid later supposedly has second sight. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, like, I think the book is – it's open-ended in the sense of, like, it's not telling you this is true. But it is saying, hey, these people aren't dumb. You know what I mean? Like, they believe it's true. And I think it's more interesting if you, if you, if you consider, like, you know – I don't know what what that means, right? I don't know. Yeah, it's more open ended, I think, though. Well, and, and I there's a great bit. I think it's towards the end of the book. She goes and talks to, I believe it's Sarah Eirik, who is the parish priest at Jorntgard, which is the uh, the estate that uh, Kristen grew, grew up on and ultimately ends up living on again. Uh, and he's old, and she tells him again about this vision of Brother Edvin, and he actually says something. Like, yeah, you might have just been really agitated. In the yes, it, you yes, know what I mean? like. <laughs> These people do believe in miracles and magic, but they're not actually they're not, credulous. No, yeah. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, <laughs> what's great, too, is a little later in the book, uh, they, they talk about, you know, uh, she's ta- she's, she's, she's think- Kristen's thinking about this, like, family lineage that her son might marry into. And it's really funny. She, like, talks about how, you know, it'd be a great match, except that, like, they always 
the, the children, like every generation bears at least one witless child and at least two of them in the lineage have been declared changelings. changelings yeah. <laughs> They've been declared changelings by Sira Eirik, you know, the guy who like previously told her not to get worked off about this nonsense. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, wait, wait, he declared them changelings? No, like, they were stolen by a nymph, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's the priest. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, but I do, I love that. Like, you're right. They're not credulous, even though they are kind of um, under siege from these various beliefs, both pagan and Christian. So one thing I think I want to talk about is the way the book uses violence. Um, I've already talked a little bit about how it's not usually the thing that gets people in trouble with society, but this is very much a book about sort of sudden male violence, right? Yes. Um, where, you know, early on when she's young, she gets almost raped like four times. Uh, and that's not even counting whatever goes now with Erlen, right. right? Like, uh, on more than one occasion, she's walking by herself or with another woman, and then, like, some some dudes show up, or a, a guy shows up and, like, tries to do terrible things to her. Um, and then even throughout, you know, throughout the rest of the book, the violence will spring up out of nowhere. Like, Simon and Erland will be hanging out with some folks working out, like, a, a legal dispute, and then somebody is rude and somebody else is rude, and then suddenly Simon is stabbing a guy, right? Uh, <laughs> or when Simon dies, he actually dies because he's... I don't remember why, because it's, it's not important. The book does a great job. Oh, it's so good. It, it doesn't actually matter how it happens, but like he's somewhere, and some guys he doesn't even know start a brawl, and he kind of breaks it up and gets scratched on his arm, like with a knife, and it gets infected and he dies. And, you know, that's not what anybody thinks is going to... You know, this isn't a major... Uh, dispute right Right, it's not even really Seaman's problem he just kind of breaks up a bar fight and dies as a result Uh, or again even when Erland dies like there's a lot of people standing around with swords so you're not as surprised but you're still not really prepared for it to just right this second break out into violence but it does you know somebody puts his hand on Kristen it's actually he's more or less just trying to like he says you can't talk to your husband like that or something I know yeah he's not he's not trying to hit her (laughs) yeah and Erland freaks out and kills him and then the guy's son kills Erland um, like it, it, there's a lot of the sort of precarity, particularly of women's positions, but of everybody's life in this place where violence is on the table and, and lethal violence is on the table. Right. And it's culturally accepted as, you know, it's illegal, but it's not, as I said, it's not usually what actually gets people in trouble. Um, and I think that it does a really good job of, of portraying this, this society where, yeah, I mean, you can get killed in a bar fight and, it's just a thing that can happen to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. It... And people are going to be sad, but it's not going to, like, shake up society. Right? You get killed in a bar fight in 2020. It happens, right? But yeah, it's like yeah. A, people are surprised. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I do think it comes back to, like, the way in which she takes the 14th century seriously, you know? Like, even so, yeah. a lot of the stuff that we find... Like you said, you know, horrifying about, you know, sorry, I hate the idea of like using women's rights, you know, like it's so anachronistic, right? It doesn't even apply to the 14th century, which is partly what's so horrifying, right? Um, you know, but like the idea that, you know, like these, like this, these foreign practices and cultural customs, she does a good job. Like, again, I don't think she, she's never making the argument for like, here's why men should protect women with swords. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure like that's exactly the argument she wants to make. But, <laughs> but like, honestly, not only the male violence precarity, but also, of course, 
um, work hard for your food or you'll die. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of kids. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there, you know, there's no, there's no really effective birth control. You know, um, if if you happen to be fertile and like sex, which Kristen does on both counts. You know, like she is fertile and she and Erlen can't keep apart. Um, you're gonna have a lot of kids. You know what I mean? Like, so the dangers of childbirth and the dangers of also like having this many boys in a situation where like you work for your food or you die. Like all of like a lot of the a lot of the pressures of what the families can or can't do, they can't, like again, they almost like they're trying to solve problems of precarity at every level, right? Like, um, women are protected in a way that you know we would find maybe like disrespectful, but of course, men are literally just raping people and stabbing people. You know what I mean? Like, there was a precarity that was like, well, you know, Simone can defend you, and and you can't use a sword. You know, like you know, you just you're not as strong or whatever, right? Like, like there's almost that weird like reactionary argument being made, but it's not, it's not like saying it's good. It's saying that it's coherent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's what I found pr- profound at times. Cause even when I, it feels alien or bad or immoral, it definitely wasn't um, incomprehensible, which is quite a feat. I think um, of any, of any book, but definitely of a book that's doing historical fiction at this, at this level where she's hitting so many like domestic issues and also emerging, you know, immersing you in the, the Norwegian uh, succession scandal <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Male violence though. Yeah. I did. Uh, I did like when um, uh, it's, it's how often they would manhandle animals. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like, uh, it's not, it's not, this part's not funny, but, um, like Kristen's daughter gets paralyzed because a bull gets loose and knocks some timber on her. It talks about lavender. Not Kristen's daughter. Kristen's uh, sister. Uh, yeah. Kristen's other sister. Ovid, yeah. yeah. You both, you and I have both called one of her sisters <laughs> a daughter. Um, anyway, but so, but so like, you know, it talks about the father, you know, Laverin's grabbing the bull by the nose and like, and later it talks about her, her twin sons. They got a hold of some axes by like seven and they like, they like just like for fun kill a sheep, <laughs> and that's like con- without the book. You like you're seeing this kind of relationship to violence that you know, g- g- it's every level of life. You know, well, it's you know all the Kristen has eight sons, uh, six of whom survive to adulthood, um, and Erland, of course, who's been kind of a you know he's been a military guy. He fought in various little border skirmishes and such, and fought a lot of Russians and so on. Uh, so obviously they all learn how to handle weapons and he's always really excited about it. He's like, yeah, they should absolutely know how to use right. swords and axes and bows and whatever. And Kristen is always like really uncomfortable with it, but not, again, she doesn't say, boy, I, it would be better if we could all put down our swords. That would be no, that yeah. would false, right? She doesn't say that. But the, her sort of uncomfortable relation to having all of these young Vikings, basically. I mean, not something about yeah. Vikings anymore. But that's but, right? basically what they like, are, yeah. is, And particularly the twins, uh, Ivar and Skula, are, are really <laughs> Hellions and they're the ones who kill the the sheep uh and she's always kind of worried they're just going to go get into a brawl and kill someone and i don't think they don't do that literally although Skula does all uh, go and become a soldier somewhere and gets his whole face mashed in at one point yeah such that when she sees the last time she sees him she's like, he's got his his mouth is just destroyed and he's laughing and she repeats she says more than once or the narration does from her perspective more than once about how the laugh doesn't fit his face yeah um i don't know and also obviously this is a world without you know, antibiotics, right? And so every time anybody gets injured, I get nervous. And rightly, I mean, that's what kills Simone is an infection. Uh, and so, the, you know, the real precarity, as I think we've said, is is continuously brought home. Because not only is there a lot of violence, but the violence can have worse consequences. Because you can die from stuff that we wouldn't even, you know what I mean? Flinch at. No, well, and I, I was going to say, actually, well, I, I loved your point about Kristen is not so naive. Or again, she's not such a, 
a projection of 20th century sensibilities to say like everyone should just get along and not fight you know like in some ways she does believe that but you know uh, her, her anxiety about her sons getting hurt is just that. The anxiety about her sons getting hurt. It's 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 no different in some ways than a 21st century novel talking about like um, the dangers of honestly a car crash, right? Like oh my son wants to buy a motorcycle. Like all of my, and you know all of his brothers ride motorcycles, and it makes me nervous every time they go out, right? Like like it's not it's not a commentary on motorcycle culture per se, right? Um, but it is addressing the realities of like. You know, they lived in a culture of swords and violence, just like we live in a culture of roadways, and the violence that we have is mostly accidental, you know what I mean? And, um, I mean, she does. She consistently kind of, you know, positions the character to resist the the projection impulse, to just be a simple, like... It's like it's like the you know the trope of like there's the good historical character you know what I mean like like uh, every 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 book nowadays I feel like every movie is like hey it's the it's the you know time of slavery or whatever but like these are the good white people like they also love yeah. gays I was like oh no they probably didn't you know what I mean like they like, <laughs> I'm not saying they should have I'm just saying like they definitely didn't like any of those people and they they were you know part of their culture most likely but yeah it's, she avoids that though she avoids that without also making them like cheap character caricatures in a different direction um this is a this is a point this isn't my point somebody else i knew who used to say this to me but like uh whenever you get in the 19th century like a 19th century uh historical fiction or a movie or something and somebody's finding out about art or 19th or early 20th the art the art friend is always really interested in the impressionists right yeah. like yeah they're great they're doing cool stuff yeah well a lot of people at the time said this is trash why are they doing this it would be kind of fun to have yeah. you know, an art loving friend in one of these books or movies be like i hate monet so much <laughs> i hate i hate monet uh but of course you never do because you want to have your main characters have as much as possible you know morality and aesthetic judgments that rhyme with ours yes, which is not right. obviously how it was and this book doesn't do that well um, I, I do I, that's exactly what it is I, I found it fascinating that Kristen's morality at times it rhymes with mine I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian but honestly like it's still pretty freaking foreign you know what I mean like I don't think she and I agree on a lot of the basic ways to like have a household you know um, or to like you know whatever right um, but I never I never stopped finding them compelling for the most part. Even in her old age, I, I, I did I found the power struggle she has with her daughter-in-law, who is basically a good person, sort of, or she's a she's a she's a strong person doing the right thing, and Christian recognizes that. And there's still this kind of like weird tragedy of, you know, I, I guess even the good things I have, my sons, I also have to let go of. You know, what do you take to the grave with you? It would be the cliche, nothing. Um yeah, and but the book takes it seriously that kind of tragedy. But um, I do want to ask you. Okay, so the Black Death. <laughs> <laughs> I know this. This is a loaded question. Did this remind you of any other book we read this year, or was it or last year? Whenever the heck we read that this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gee, I can't think of any other books that. Uh, well, I, there's there's two books that we've read recently that this book talks to. Uh, I mean, it's, it was before both of them. Yeah. But obviously, a secular age is. Uh, you you can't help but think about a secular age when you read this very much this is so. very much the pre-secular yes, age yes. you know it is very much an enchanted world it is not and and this sort of re- reminded me of why that shift is so foundational right yeah you know, everyone in this book no matter what they get up to is a christian of some kind right i mean even erland who is not a pious man and who right. is you know generally pretty happy to just wine women in song uh is still thinking about you know christian questions right but the other one of course is in june we read uh, Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, who also, uh, total side note, I'm on a big Connie Willis binge right now, 
and I, I went to her Facebook page, and she actually mentioned Kristen Laverne's daughter as being her favorite novel of all time. Um, which is wild. Which is really but, uh, but it makes total sense. You, you read this book, and if you've read Doomsday Book first, I, I can completely see the genealogy, I think. Uh, yeah. And obviously, this book is not about the Black Plague. The Black Plague is, just, is, is what happens in the last 30 pages of the book to kill a lot of people. Um, but there's a similar move in both Doomsday Book and... Kristen Laverne's daughter, where first of all, the Black Plague is the end of the world, right? Because right. it, it kills Kristen, it kills her two older sons, and there's nothing to be done about it. Um, and also, they have a similar move of, you know, as we've talked about several times, taking the historical period very seriously and making the point that they were real people, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, you can definitely draw a straight line from Connie Willis loving this book to Connie Willis writing Doomsday Book. And so... You know, I always love it when our books talk to each other. I do too, uh, explicitly yeah. or implicitly. And well, and I, I I didn't know that she liked it, and when we first started reading it or chose it, you know, yeah. I, I had no idea. That was like two days ago that I saw. Yeah, it. Yeah, 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 and, it's, and I, I, more than once. I mean, I think you can see a lot of um, the way that Kivrin work. Kivrin is the main character of Doomsday Book. The way that Kivrin works, like, the way that she like goes about, you know, tasks, um, really reminded me of this book. Which this book is so concerned with, like. Uh, materiality right everyone's building something everyone's cooking something um and it's very specific and intelligent about like again everything's it's always like smart like you know she has to reprimand a maid for not doing the uh um the ale correctly because it's the first time she's not doing the ale so it's you know it's always about more than just the task at hand like it's about her position and the family or whatever how things are changing but you're always getting the materiality even the most honestly even the most um sentimental moment which i i should have hated and i kind of loved you know laverin's is drunk and mad one night, Kristen's father, the night she got married actually, and he pounds the like outhouse timber, the you know, the, the timber of the outhouse, and he, he tells you in a speech basically that that's the same timber that uh, paralyzed his daughter, Ulvid. And it was like it was this kind of dumb but also beautiful moment of like, well of course he couldn't get rid of the timber. You know what I mean? Like it was good timber. He he had to use it for something. And so he chose something that he hated. Like she's so aware of how physical these people's lives are, which actually I wanted to, to bring up as well. I don't know how much contemporary fiction you've read lately, but isn't it nice to read a book where people have bodies? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like a lot, of contemporary, a, lot of, a lot of contemporary fiction is like these people met in college and hear their names and like they're beautiful or they're white, but like you don't know anything about them. Whereas if like after reading this book, I'd be like in line with the bank and I'd be like, oh, that narrow-waisted man with his full head of hair, you know? That broad-shouldered woman who's so strong in her stance, you know what I mean? Like, it really, it really was nice to read, but also kind of got in my head. Yeah, well, and of course, Kristen's body, the way it changes and doesn't change, you know? Oh, it's uh, huge, yeah. As she gets older and, you know, her hands get weathered and then for a while when she's sunburnt because she's doing all the work and then when she has her last child, she kind of goes back to being sort of... Uh, Youthful, you know, pale yeah. and virginal and beautiful, you know? It is obviously, yeah, I mean, it is a major through line in the book. You know, I don't, I, don't, I haven't read too much, but I know what you mean. Like, uh, I've read a lot of books that have come out in the last few years, which is just entirely in somebody's head with just really no, unless there's like a racial question or something, right? Like, there's just no, it's entirely divorced from the physicality. Yeah, the bodies don't matter as much. No, I think it's really, well, and I think it's part of this book, right? The bodies have to matter. It's all about how you look and how well you can work, you know? Well, and even, you know, even the, you know, Kristen's family is re- is pretty wealthy, right? But, you know, they do have to, to cook, the f- to, to harvest the food and to build the things or they will die. Like right, they, yeah. You know, no. <laughs> they, they can't just go to the supermarket and, and buy whatever they want. Like, they have to raise their own cattle. And when they have a drought and the, you know, the cattle are 
being slaughtered earlier than they want to in the winter. Like it's a, it's an existential concern, uh, which is you know we're so divorced from those kinds of questions in our society, whether you're wealthy or not. That yeah, it's it's good to as you said this they have bodies and there's a real sense of precarity and materiality as you've said. Well, I think I think there's something for for most of us. I mean, I've I've got a cousin who you know he he he's like you know a rancher out in Oklahoma. And um, he, you know, he didn't grow up that way. He, he kind of chose it um, in college, or you know, when he was going to college for a bit. And um, and it's funny, you know, whenever, whenever we go to Oklahoma, we, we try and go to his farm, and you know, like we'll go, you know, like we we'd like the nieces and nephews go like collect eggs for him. But he, you know, and, and and he lives a way more, you know, kind of in tune with nature life than I do. Like his daughter, who's about my daughter's age, you know, she's she's way more rampant. You know what I mean? Like and not because like we're not <laughs> we're not very careful with my daughter per se, but like, you know, we live we live in an apartment, right? Like, you know, we can go on walks on stone you know, on on sidewalks. Like that's kind of where we can go. Whereas his daughter can roam the fields, you know, with their dogs who guard sheep and stuff, right? But even even him though, like um even the materiality of my family, who are all like kind of craftspeople in their own way, a lot of them it just doesn't compare to the craftsmanship that this book depicts. And I, I do think there's like, there's just this real basic pleasure in reading about people interacting with the world this way, you know, because for most of us, it's totally foreign, you know, like we're, you know, basically no, not basically no one is a subsistence farmer, you know, who also builds their own house. I mean, like, that's not a thing that, yeah. but what's crazy is I think partly why she writes about it is because that was something that was even for her already passing away. Right. Like, like my granddad, you know, who was born in 1917, he did some of this stuff, barely, you know, like made his own steak knives. But it was it was already passing away for her in, in the 20s. Um, but I think for us, it's just very pleasurable to read about that stuff. One of my favorite notes like that, Laverne's Kristen's father, uh, he actually he did he did the carving for the like the high seat. Yeah. Like the art artistic carving and there it's an old house so there was some sort of pagan stuff that he replaced with things that are more appropriate to have in a christian house and at one point Kristen talks about how he's he's great at at carving you know animals and uh, you know plants but when he when he tries to carve people he's actually not very good yeah. at it and you know and there's a the real you know, this is this is his house that he, he didn't build it but like this was his house in a more material way you know if you if i say that you know I'm building my own house. What I mean is, I'm paying a bunch of contractors to build a house, right? Like I'm yeah. not. It's very unlikely that I'm building my own house. What? Of course, I'm never going to build a house, but you know. What no, I mean. no. Uh, I, yeah, me, me either, Bill. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's a real pleasure, as you said, in, in in reading these people who are much more in tune with sort of the material world than I'm ever going to be. Of course, I, I, you know, I have allergies, right? Like I'd like to be just a brain in <laughs> a bat. I'm on board with that. I've, uh, I had a friend who said that. You know, my, my whole approach to physical life appears to be get me out of this thing. <laughs> I think that's pretty much right. <laughs> well, I have, I feel like I have the burden of like, um, you know, I had the interest for a lot of that stuff. And I, I, I like some, you know, I've built like a shelf or two and, you know, they're terrible. But like my, my family is very crafty, you know. And so whenever I read, I read these books, it's like it's time, you know. It's time to <laughs> time to get out the jigsaw and like, oh, right, put it where? You know what I mean? Like we, I don't have, you know, a house. Like my uncle. Shop, yeah, yeah, like my, my uncle in, uh, in Oklahoma or my, my dad even here. Like, yeah, they have like actual shops in their garage. You know what I mean? Like because they have a two- or three-car garage because they bought a house in, the, you know, the 90s or the 80s or whatever. You know what I mean? Like in Oklahoma where you could buy anything. <laughs> Um, just the other day, I, I 
I remembered that I can actually just replace the power steering fluid in my own car. I don't have to pay somebody else to do that. I can, in fact, just go to Walmart and spend five dollars. <laughs> it's it's true, yeah. And I was very proud of myself, but I, you know, that's that's the sort of thing that I just don't think about because I'm so divorced from the physical reality of things. My car is a magical explosion machine, and I go and I take it, and somebody else fixes it. You know, no, I have to do that. I'm a smart guy. You know, cars aren't really all that complicated. I'm not saying I need to replace the carburetor where people even have carburetors. Yeah, I know carburetor carburetor is still, is, yeah, they're still there. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have to do that. That kind of stuff. But, you know, I can do basic car maintenance. Right. YouTube. You, know, you can look up anything, oh, but YouTube's I never think great. about it until my car starts making a horrible sound. Then I'm like, right, I do need to do this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Uh, so we just, we had like had a ton of car trouble. Uh, welcome to our car podcast. And uh, we, uh, <laughs> but we, we ended up buying a, a Toyota Corolla for my, for my buddy. And it's a manual, which I told you about recently. And yeah. I, my, yeah. my wife drove manual in high school and college. And I, I never did. Like I, I wanted to, you know, it was definitely my family. My family was you know, pretty traditional. It was definitely like a mark of manhood or a competence, if not manhood, to be able to drive a manual. And I, and I couldn't, you know. So we, we bought this car. <laughs> it's a commuter car. And I drive to like the heart of Denver traffic every day. And I, I've been really, I was really nervous about it, you know, because I didn't want to stall out on I-25, you know, like, hey, traffic jam, this guy can't drive. Um, it's this guy's fault. It's yeah. literally, he just, the car's <laughs> fine. It's him, you know. Um, but I, so I, I like practiced a bunch, went to like a really hilly neighborhood and like just stalled out a bunch, you know, on purpose basically. And I've been driving it very successfully. Like I picked it up in like a day or a day and a half. And uh, there's a there's a scene in this stupid book which I love where Erland he thinks ahead to like bring a sleigh to take some of Kristen's stuff back and it's like a practical like you know like down to earth idea and she the book from her point of view talks about like he's so pleased with himself that is exactly how I have felt all week every time I get to work <laughs> it's like I'm champion of the road you know what I mean like <laughs> um, but I loved it because like this book is so. It's so perceptive on how people, you know, feel about themselves or whatever that like I more than once, even with characters I don't relate to, it was hard not to find it relatable. Like, oh, gosh, dang it. I'm also a dissolute, lazy person who when I do one thing practical, I feel like I've conquered the earth. Dead gummit. Well, I mean, I have actually caused a traffic jam by stalling out a, a uh, manual transmission, uh, not on I-25, but on US-50. I did do that <laughs> once, so that's a horrible feeling. Yeah. People behind you are yelling at you, and you're like, I know, I know. and there's no wrong with the car, and I'm sorry, and you're just going to have to put up with this for 45 seconds until I can take enough of a deep breath to... God, that was... My, I, was I was trying to drive to... I think I told you the story off the podcast, but I was trying to drive to uh, not literally my uncle's funeral, but like the pre-gathering stuff, Yeah. and so I was already kind of agitated anyway. Uh, cause we had a lot of deaths in the family recently and I'm just sitting in not the middle of the intersection, but like close, just not being able to drive this machine. <laughs> and, uh, cause I, I used to drive a stick like years ago, yeah. but I hadn't for years. And people say it's like riding a bike. I can't ride a bike anymore either. Uh, <laughs> I, you, <laughs> this is Bill be telling embarrassing stories. I love podcast, it. But I, I had a bike that I rode around like not very far, but I rode around like the trailer park yeah. growing up and I wasn't great at it, but I, you know, I could, I could ride it around. I wasn't pulling BMX stunts or whatever. And then some years later, a friend had brought a bike over, and I was like, I'm going to you know, drive this around the parking lot of it. And yeah, I couldn't do it. Like, I fell over the whole time. I'm, not I'm physically sorry, I'm gifted, laughing so hard. Say, Charles Boyle. No, it's... it's <laughs> I was trying to... Oh, another time I was trying to deliver a bike from, <laughs> uh, in Oxford. I was trying to ride, my, ride a bike from oh, my man. flat south of Oxford 
in uh, basically Abingdon, not not in Abingdon, but like on the route towards it, yeah. up towards the place north of it where my then girlfriend was staying, and I just was, I was I was ride the bike up there and then take the bus back, and that was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> well, also you're I mean I you know it's very easy to switch your brain if you've lived in England long enough to like the different sides of the road, but the first time I I rode a bike in England. Like, I've been doing great walking, you know, um, like with the, you know, different side of the road thing. And then I got on a bike and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not, this part of my brain has not yet switched over, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but no, I think honestly, though, I think that's why I said earlier, I think this book for me and I'm sure for honestly, you, you joked about it earlier, like, you know, the dozens of. You know, you know, leftist Christian book nerds who love this book as well, or whatever. You know, like <laughs> dozens of us who love this book. Um, but honestly, I, it, I, this book has been recommended by a lot of people who I think probably could, like, if the book takes some of these themes seriously. I think to love it, um, you have to relate to some of it, but you also you also have to take it seriously. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I, I'd yeah. be curious about someone who had no patience, you know, because the, the book doesn't want to convince you that Christianity is true. It's just presenting a world in which everyone thinks it is true. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it doesn't have an agenda per se, I don't think, um, at least not one that is, you know, overly simplistic. But um, Well, it's not, it's not an evangelizing. Yes, book, it's right? not like propaganda. Yeah. But, um, but at the same time, there was no – there was really no obstacles f- for, for me to take a lot of its – big um questions of meaning seriously right like it's questions about family life or about the difficulty of like dividing labor among two people who love their kids but like are good and bad at different things you know two people who are willful and uh you know whatever like you know um someone who feels strongly or you know but also is kind of morally directed with that strong emotion like all of these things that are both very psychological but also is God real and is he mad at me? You know, like <laughs> um, all of that was very easy to kind of take on board for me. And I think um, I, I think it does uh, it does make it harder to judge how effective the book is. Well, at the same time, I would say, like, she just never makes anything easy. You know, like Kristen tries to redeem herself at the end and she dies of the Black Plague, which oh yeah, I brought up earlier, you know, like. That's that's a pretty harsh ending for the, your main character, isn't it? Like, um, I mean, she she has some like you said redemption with you know how she helps a woman, a woman's corpse, you know, kind of get consecrated burial over. But like you know, there's a way in which like Kristen sort of just gets punished throughout the book, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, and it's also uh, one reason I like the ending is it also feels very real, right? Like, again, this is not a book about the Black Plague, but the Black Plague shows up and kills, you know, a third to half of Europe. Right. Like, a lot of people's stories ended like this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, no, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, she she doesn't get pages and pages of epiphanies on her deathbed, right? There's a few, a couple pages where she's kind of thinking about right. it, but she's dropping in and out of consciousness. She's dropping in and out of you know, coherence, right? Because even when she's awake, sometimes she's losing, she doesn't have any, she's having a fever and whatever, right? Yeah. And it, it does just kind of stop. And there's a way, it's one way I think the book really does feel very real, you know, uh, and, but you're right. I mean, it is kind of a harsh ending, uh, you know, because we don't like get two chapters about how her family comes back for her funeral. And it, no, I mean, like the plague's still ravaging Norway. <laughs> yeah. The end. <laughs> We're not sure who else is alive. You know, how many of her other sons died of the plague? I, I don't know. We don't know. Maybe, it's maybe some of them, you know, is her grandson that she liked alive? We don't know. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, the, the book really takes its 
moral project pretty seriously too, right? And, you know, even though Kristen has a redemptive moment, it doesn't mean she's not going to die of the Black Plague. Right. That's not how it works. No, yeah, you know? it's not how it works. And I, But, yeah, but I, and I actually, I brought it up because I, I don't think, so there's, I don't remember, some famous person, some famous critic at one point made the argument that, like, um, you know, uh, uh, Flaubert really did, like, he really kind of in the end, you know, despise, he must despise his character, Madame Bovary, because the way she dies is so painful and drawn out, and it has, like, no redemptive quality to it, which I actually disagree with that thesis. I won't get into it. Um, but, but so I thought of that with this, because there is something um, consistently unsentimental about what Unset is choosing, you know what I mean? But it also, it was never just like a knee-jerk, unsentimental, you know what I mean? Like, Kristen really does want to like yeah i mean she's not entering the nunnery just because she doesn't know what else to do with her life you know what i mean like she's trying to live out some sort of virtuous existence and um but i also love in the end she also can't quite escape who she is you know like once the being a nun goes from like contemplating god to like caring for the sick and keeping food in store it talks about like she becomes mistress again you know like she can't help it like she talks to people as if they're servants again you know and so the the complexity of you know her willfulness and her values never really subsides, but I did find I will say you know to, to transition a little bit I found most of the death scenes pretty moving to be honest and every every time I was every time initially I was like oh someone else is gonna die huh and then like even with Kristen it was being so matter of fact and then it says like Moonen um, you know her her son who dies one of her sons who dies she sees him like peek around the corner and it was so funny because like it's like it's sentimental, the idea of like seeing someone you love who died before you on your deathbed, but the way he was still childish, you know, like he peeks around the corner. I, I, yeah, I mean, I found it very moving because it also was one line and it moved on. Yeah, we didn't get fifteen pages about that. I have a couple of little things I kind of want to hit if 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 we're at that point of the podcast, to think we yeah, are. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so a couple little things. One. Um, this is also a good book about how everyone should just mind their own dang business. <laughs> like, so when everyone is, uh, you know, yelling at Kristen for maybe committing adultery, they're going to put her on trial for it. I was like, you know, it's, it's good that adultery isn't a crime anymore. That's yeah. Good because like, just go leave people alone. What are you doing? Um, that's, so that's one of the moments when it, like the foreignness of the setting really, uh, hit me because it didn't even occur to me that that you know what i mean yeah. like i, I knew oh, yeah. that, i know that adultery was a crime until actually not really very long ago but like why is this a state matter go away uh, <laughs> no i totally agree <laughs> um second thing uh the game did make me want to start a new crusader kings 3 campaign set in norway <laughs> um which is it's actually pretty anachronistic the latest you can start a ck3 campaign is 1066 but uh you know that could be kind of fun um Crusader Kings 3 being a game I'm actually mostly not allowed to play because when I first got it, like, I played it a little bit, but then that first Friday, I started playing it at, like, 10 o'clock at night for a bit and then realized I had to stop when the light was, you know, coming over my window. I was like, oh, no, this is, I can't do this anymore. This is a problem. But I had conquered all of Spain again, so that was Yeah, Spaniards, um, take that. Yeah, I had taken my, uh, my, oh, what's the word? I can't think of it. My emir, that's right, from, you know, Moorish southern Spain, and I owned all of all of Spain, so that felt like an accomplishment. A uh, couple other little things. Uh, there's a couple of uh, really funny moments when some of the sort of uh, specific Christian saint stuff feels very weird and funny. Like, there's a great bit pretty early on when there's... A, so, so Thomas Beckett is actually the saint that... 
like Labyrinth's Bjorgelson kind of cares about the most, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's a great bit when, like, did you hear what the, some of the priests and Labyrinths are talking? They're like, well, did you hear about that, you know, the vision that Thomas Beckett had where all of the, he went, he went to hell and he said, well, where are all the people who were so rude to me? And they're like, oh, well, here he is. Satan, lift up your tail. And then they all spill out of Satan's butt. And like, then they talk about like, well, who actually was there crammed up Satan's butt? And it's like, what? what? <laughs> Why is that? I mean, yeah, that would be unpleasant. It's what? so funny, though, isn't it? <laughs> what? <laughs> and, I mean, you feel like the people are sort of joking, but it actually appears to be, like, they're actually sort of debating, like, who oh, actually totally. would have been there and yeah. why. Um, there's another really funny bit where... Um, let me get the exact quote here. Give me one sec. Yeah, so uh, when Erland is trying to marry Kristen, he sends a couple of his, like, family members to go, like, bargain with Laverins, right? And one of them says, you know, Laverins, listen, like, think about that they, they loved each other so much. It's so beautiful. I mean, uh, you know, as soon as she saw him, she fainted because of how beautiful he was. And Laverins sits in silence for before he replies. Yes, that sort of thing sounds so beautiful. And we hear, hear it in a courtly tale from the southern lands. But we are not in Bretland. And surely X, Y, and Z. And Bretland is Wales. <laughs> I just love, <laughs> I love this. Yeah, I know. But we're not in Wales. We're in the real world. <laughs> um, a couple of other sort of... So, so one of Kristen's kids uh, has trouble with his eyes his whole life, right? And uh, he eventually goes blind. And there's a bit where when he's young, he's getting like some sort of eye infection, which is clearly what, you know, uh, takes his sight. Yes. And he's getting like crusts all I over know his eyes. Exactly I know exactly like, what you're going to talk about. <laughs> I don't know if it's a particularly horrifying form of pink eye or what, right? But he's getting like crusts on his eyes and he's always in pain. And Kristen moistens his eyes with her tongue. <laughs> And Erland, it's from Erland's perspective when he's in, he's like, eh, that's gross and I hate it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, me too, Erland. <laughs> like, I, I'm 100% on board with you on this. There's got to be a better way. Like, I <laughs> you, know, you, know what, you know what I thought? I had two thoughts when that, when that happened. One is that Sigurd Unset has seen that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Someone has done this. In her the other <laughs> one is I'll, I'll keep their identity, you know, secret for the sake of their honor. Um, but we used to go to the lake with my my grandpa, my dad's dad in Oklahoma, he just went to this lake, you know, real backwoods stuff. And uh, my cousins and my, you know, whole family went. And one time someone got pink eye and it, it really, it wasn't me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was too young, thankfully, to know what I would have done. And we, like, you know, they were, you know, they were, you know, not feeling good, stayed back at the camp with Pa, my grandpa. And uh, we came back and like, it was way worse. My dad was like, what happened? <laughs> and uh, this per- the person in question said, oh, Pa said I should pee into a cup and put the pee in my eye. <laughs> and, <laughs> It'll, it'll help it. And my dad's like, well, now we have to go to the hospital, I'm pretty sure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, like, Pa was like, my Pa was like a super smart guy, but like he grew up just long enough ago. He was like, well, this worked in my day. Like, I don't, I don't think it did. <laughs> I don't think it does. Anyway, but yes, Sigrid Unzet, she definitely saw someone do that. <laughs> uh, a couple of just random little things. Um, there's a great bit. They're talking about a, a healer in one of the nearby towns who's so great. And the line is like, she's a great healer. She always heals the children. Unless it's and, God's will that the baby dies. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 100% of the time it works. 40% of the time it works every time, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, exactly <laughs> right. Um, uh, there's also a, a throwaway line where somebody says something about longing for the fjords. And, of course, I went on a little dead parrot routine. <laughs> like, pining for the fjords. <laughs> uh, which doesn't matter either, but... Um, 
encountering a line in fiction which has a whole different meaning now always makes me laugh like i think i've said this in the podcast before there's a brief mention in the first red wall book of somebody who is i can't remember the context but she's trying to do something and something is trying to stop her and the book the narration just says nevertheless she persisted and i was like yeah what <laughs> um the, the last thing i want to talk about is there's this recurring idea apparently in the culture which is that you don't name somebody uh, you've already talked about this for somebody who was already alive right, right? You, you, it's okay to reuse a name if it's somebody else right uh but you don't name somebody for a living person uh and there's a bit where one of her sons is, is is just born and it's when her father is dying and they all sort of agree that given that he's dying right now and we need to baptize the baby it's okay if you name this kid Laverins because Laverins is clearly dying uh but there's still like some cultural wibbliness around that right like people are uncomfortable she names her one son Erland even though Erland is very much still alive and then the baby sickens and dies but I think when Simon dies his wife Romborg is pregnant with their second uh son and uh, she goes into labor basically when she hears that he's dying and she names him Simon. And I was thinking that if you really, which means his name is Simon Simonson, right? Yeah. And I think about like what that, what that says, what you, for the rest of his life, he introduces himself. My name is Simon Simonson. And what that means is my, my dad, dad died, died before I was born. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I had not thought uh, of that. I thought about that, about how that's, that's what that's got to say to everybody. And what's well, sort of a weird thing to do to your kid, right? <laughs> On the other hand, of course, it's beautiful. You know, obviously, it's beautiful you name the kid after his father, right? But yeah, with, with that patronymic, you're right. It's, it's just a waving a flag. Um, I had, I had some small things too, actually. Well, one of them was, you know, I, I could have gone on a lot longer about it, and I think this is where, um, this is where you could, you know, make an argument for this this text having, you know, um, proto-feminist sympathies in the sense that it like takes women's uh, trials and tribulations very seriously, you know? Um, and one of those trials and tribulations is labor, like giving birth to a child. Um, and I, I thought the, you know, the ways in which, um, it depicted Kristen's first, uh, you know, delivery of a child. I thought it was incredible. One, it was, it was actually what I thought, what I really thought was that it was one of the longest labor scenes I've ever read. Maybe the longest I've ever read in fiction. There's plenty of, you know, books that try and do like pregnancy labor scenes or whatever. But this one was, I thought it was so great with how it like shifted from different perspectives. Like, you know, everyone's struggling, like <laughs> like in this part of the country, men are allowed to come in the room, you know, and she's like, what are you doing in here? But also she's confessing yeah. everything to her brother-in-law. Cause she thinks she's going to die. You know, and it's just this huge, drawn-out process, and I, I, I thought it was incredible for how, uh, yeah, how realistic it was, but all, also the way in which she, she managed to, you know, to make it interesting by interlacing all the different people who are involved, you know, because like, yeah. that's what got me about, you know, when our first kid was born is, yeah, it's, it's this huge community project. In fact, like the doctors always tell you, like, you know, like your wife's in labor and they tell you and the wife, like, Hey, you're close, you know? And I, my wife's in medicine. She knew they were lying, but I was like, Oh, we're close, babe. You hear them? And, and then the doctor would, you know, the doctor would leave, you know? And that was always like, yeah, not that close, I guess. (laughs) And then, (laughs) and then, you know, the doctor's not lying when they say, Hey, we're close. And then, like, seven other people show up. <laughs> all of a sudden, this room, which I've been, like, in, like you know, like, like it's, like, been, like, a little monastery of her, you know, my wife's pain. And I've been sitting next to her just, like, trying to, like, get through it with her for 20 hours. And then all of a sudden, there's eight strangers with two trash cans. And you're like, oh, I don't know what's about to happen, but, like, 
I'm going to curse. Some shit's about to go down, you know, like, um, anyway, so I love that. But I also, I thought in general, um, honestly, I, I love the way in which motherhood pounds Kristen into the sand. You know what I mean? Like I really, I really thought it was so smart that the, the whole book is in some ways this, you know, a tightrope act, you know, like this, you know, she's, she's walking this tightrope, but both Kristen, but also actually, you know, Unset, right? Like there's a way in which if she goes too far to the left, it becomes sentimental claptrap. If she goes too far to the right, it becomes sort of like cynical, dismissive, you know, like, Hey, why weren't you just 21st century? You know, shouldn't you just have known better? Like she, and she never goes either direction. And, um, th- that's true of a lot of other tensions that she holds, you know, kind of, um, throughout the book but i did i think the way that like kristen is just defeated by giving birth after birth after birth you know and then um as her sons grow it keeps happening you know she keeps having all of these anxieties that you know turn her bitter toward her husband and they come from being a mother and i found i found it not only realistic but i I thought that the way that she created drama out of that you know that she kept creating drama out of this essentially domestic issue i found it very like impressive you know on on like a craft level which is a word i hate but also just on a human level that you could actually take this drama which i think everyone feels in their own life and then she made it interesting for other people you know that's the whole difficulty with writing is like everyone has stuff going on but it's like leo tolstoy's great gift you know like he takes people's basic family drama and makes it so compelling and she did the same thing i thought so one other quick thing i want to mention on that front uh, there's a bit when Erland and Kristen are fighting and Erland is like, I always thought that when we got married, it would be a great holiday all the time, but you're just pregnant all of the time. And that makes things complicated. <laughs> We're like, well, Erland, I mean, you, you do contribute to that process, know, buddy. Like, you could maybe make some different choices. <laughs> well, I, I, love, I love that the book is so unrelenting in some ways. Like, um, like the last time she gets pregnant, it's her, you know, eighth kid that she conceived in the mountains with Erland during the reconciliation. And she's like, I know it's going to be a daughter, you know, and, um, and she's never, she's never been wrong. Every other time she's been right, you know, and then it's, it's a son. It's her eighth son. (laughs) I just kept, (laughs) I just kept like repeating that to myself, you know, because in the modern world, like, um, you know, you have, you have three kids, you're like a, you know, you stand out. I mean, my, my brother has five kids and pe- people meet him and, and they're like, hey, uh, Mormon, Catholic, what's your belief? And like, they, they, <laughs> like what's up? Yeah, yeah, they just, they know to ask, you know, <laughs> there's something there. Yeah. But yeah, I thought, yeah, the, the, the mini and sons. The fact that she only has, the fact that she only has sons, you know, obviously the, the, the difference between, you know, the day-to-day life of a woman and a man in the book is obviously a lot of what yeah, the book is about. Yeah. And it means that Kristen, you know, she doesn't really understand a lot of her sons, partly because they're sons and like, She's just basically given birth to this brood of space aliens. <laughs> yeah, you know, a in little bit. Yeah, her yeah. Own perspective. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one reason. That, so she always feels very isolated, right? Like yes. she doesn't really have any uh, significant female friends and she doesn't really understand any of the men in her life, you know. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic. And that, that particular sort of fear of motherhood, of which, you know, I'm actually not a mother, right? But, you know, you, you give birth to all these sons who then go off and become men and get into fist fights. You know, I think the book portrays that very, very well. <laughs> it really did. Um, I loved, uh, I also love, so it's just, there's a lot of great little, like, wisdom lines, you know, um, that I think, again, out of context, they're probably not very profound, but I, I found profound as I, as I stumbled upon them. And one of them was, as Kristen's leaving her ancestral home, that was also kind of her her later family home for her own brood. She's like kind of, you know, 
she knows she's not really wanted there anymore. And she also knows that her, her son, Gauta, who, you know, will be in charge of the, the farm. He'll be happier without her with his wife and stuff, you know. And um, so she's leaving and she's kind of going north to where she used to live with um, Erland. And so she, she there's this line which just says, you know, homesickness drew her forward to the north and homesickness drew her back toward the village and the manor, you know, of her youth. And I, there was something about that where it was like, that does kind of feel, you know, I'm, I'm you know, not old yet, but I do think aging often is this weird, um, yeah, menu of homesicknesses that you, you know, you're, you're never quite home in some ways, you know, and that's not true. Like that's maybe too like, I don't know, abstract or whatever, but I, I just feel like there is a way in which, uh, it's not just that you can't go home again. It's that you have multiple homes, and the, mul- yeah. the multiple homes mean you don't really ever have a home again, you know. And I think that just keeps proliferating. Like I think as you get older and your kids move out, I do think that you know that just keeps getting worse and worse. Um, you know, if you have if you have kiddos like she does, I, I thought again, simple, but there's so many of those little lines where I, I felt like she continually captured family life um, in, a, in a very concrete but also meaningful way. Oh, one point. Uh, one point. <laughs> At one point, I believe Erland is a little racist <laughs> um, toward uh, uh, the Finns, the Russians. And Car- oh yeah, the Finns, Russians, and Karelians. Uh, he calls them mixed breeds of all kinds: troll rabble, conjurers, heathen dogs, the devil's own precious lambs. <laughs> and I just, she was so good with that stuff. Like I think you know, one of the basic things about historical fiction is choosing it. You know language and figurative language that makes sense for the time and she was very sparing with that but whenever she decided to go there to give descriptions that were based in analogy um it was always very like of the period but also still kind of a little quirky like she talks about you know people decaying in the grave you know um and she talks about them being like uh buildings that have been left alone too long that collapse when people have moved away and I, I love that. I love that she continually found ways to, like, make her figurative language of the period, but also not just, like, you know, it wasn't always just nature, you know? Like, that's always a temptation when you're doing, a, a, you know, I think an older piece of work is, like, you compare everything to, like, nature because you knew that was around. She often compares things to candles or other man-made things, you know, in a way that I thought was very intelligent. I think, so this translation, uh, I guess, really differs from the other English translation, which... I guess threw in a lot of thou's and me thinkses and right, so on yeah. into it. Uh, and, and pretty much everyone speaks very rudely about that translation when you read about it now. Uh, and this translation is very, uh, very unpretentious in the language it chooses, uh, which I, I think is interesting. It does mean that I'm never really sure I have a great grasp on what the prose is actually like because I don't read Norwegian. Um, but there was one line that I did want to kind of call out that I really thought was beautiful. It's pretty early on. Uh, Kristen's a child. She's watching and they're, they're building a fire outside. And uh, so they're throwing fire onto this or throwing uh, twigs and stuff onto this fire. Right. And it says a thick, dark smoke swirled up toward the clear sky. Kristen sat and watched. The fire seemed happy to be outside and free to play. It was different. Not like when it was confined to the hearth back home and had to slave to cook the food and light up the room for them. When I first read that, I was like, oh, so Kristen's going to be happy when she's not. That's not what the book's doing at all. It's just a beautiful little image about fire. Yeah. And it was cool. Yeah. You know, it's also she was also she was funny and usually the humor was 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 not just like punchlines but there was one great punchline um which was about a woman that no one likes who talks too much and the the punchline is no one needed to say anything more than yes and ah when she was in the room <laughs> i 
<laughs> I was, and more than one woman, you know, gets taken to task for being a little chatty. Um, but that one was particularly like, Unset was lowering the hammer, you know. Uh, I, and of course, immediately you're like, yes, I've been in that room with male or female, <laughs> where you just need to acknowledge that you've heard them. <laughs> well, I think uh, you know, as always, we could talk about this book for another four hours, but I think I've hit at least most of the points I wanted to. Do you have anything else you really wanted oh, to bring up okay. about this book? Actually, I just, I remembered just something just now. At one point early on, Kristen has to go live in a convent, partly because like uh, a boy who loved her dies and you know, uh, whatever her mom at the boy's funeral calls her a whore. <laughs> it's very bad. <laughs> anyway, she goes to live in the funeral or a convent, you know, whatever. And, uh, and she's out, she's out of the convent one day and um, a jaguar escapes. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Like a leopard or something. Yeah. You're not a jaguar, I think. But no, yeah. I, I, I think it is a jaguar, actually. Not a South American thing? Yeah, yeah. But I, I, they call it a jaguar, at least in the text, I'm pretty sure. Um, Did they? Okay. Well, it could be a leopard. It could be a leopard. But, but it, uh, yeah, it, it escapes. And, uh, and like, it creates this whole panic. And it's partly why she ends up in some trouble in the woods again. But it was just this moment of, like, this book is so tame at times. But when it decides to go bonkers, it goes all in. You know what I mean? Like there's no holding back on, well, there was, um, some, some mobs and some, some, you know, stampeding because, uh, um, a wild cat was on the loose in town. <laughs> like, wait, what? So I, <laughs> yeah, I somebody brought like a menagerie and brought it to town. Yeah. yeah part I of forgot about that circus or whatever. Anyway, I wanted to get that in there. <laughs> That's good. It's a good bit. You're absolutely right. I guess I don't think I have much else. It's a good book. Uh, it's definitely worth reading. I, I think, uh, as I've said, I think it works on sort of an entertaining soap opera level. And I also think it works on a much more serious level. So I, you know, would wholeheartedly recommend Kristen Laverne's daughter. Um, I don't think we've decided for sure what we're going to read next. We have a couple of uh, candidates, but we haven't picked one yet. We are going to do our year in 2021, year in reading 2021 podcast at some point in the next few weeks. I am close, but not quite there to my goal for the year. So I might, may not finish until like December 31st. So I might want to push it back to like the first week of January <laughs> so that I can talk about all the books I read, yeah. but it'll be soon. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Joel, uh, again, I don't know if you have anything else particular to say, but I want to thanks, thank you for reading this, uh, this book with me. This is uh, our last major episode of 2021, which means we've been doing this for, for four full years, so that's cool. Oh my gosh, is it four years? Wow, dude. Yeah, right. No, 18, you're, 19, no, you're, 20, you're right. Yep. You're right. So we'll have to figure out something fun to do this time next year. It's the end of our fifth year, but we're not there yet. <laughs> no, it's been – I really um, I really in, enjoyed this book, I think. I mean, maybe I even liked it more than you did, but I, I definitely I definitely feel like it's the book. I, I, I always say this sometimes. We talk about it so much. I think sometimes I worry this podcast can create more barriers to the books we love because, you know, you and I can talk so long about so many different ideas. But um, this book was a fun read. You know, I, I, yeah. um, you know, I read it a little too quickly maybe or in too short of a time. But, um, yeah, I, it was a fun read on, on just a level of plot and narrative and everything else. Um, and, I, yeah, it was great. And also, it, it was Leopards. It was Leopards. Yeah, you were right. It was Leopards. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> no, I, I know, I know. I, I actually, yeah, even, not... <laughs> even my note says Leopard. And I just, like, yeah, so I just wanted to <laughs> look that up. And yeah, but, yeah. It would be a funnier story. <laughs> it was a Jaguar, yeah. <laughs> um, but, no, so, yeah, but I do think the book, it is a really fun read. And I know we always re- recommend the books that we've read, but I, I do think – you know, if, if you're at all interested, it's definitely worth picking up. You'll be surprised how quickly it pulls you along all of these, you know, crazy events and ideas. 
and to be clear, I, mean, I, I think Joel, you're right that you liked the book better than I did, but I liked the book a lot. So, yeah, yeah, know, no. Let's be very yeah. clear about that. Two, thumb, two thumbs up. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you guys again in a couple of weeks for the uh, year in review podcast, and uh, stay safe out there as the winter really gets going. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. So, thanks, Joel, and bye, see you, Bill. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.